The Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hellworld. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the bash in a global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean Baby. And we are broadcasting not live from Leftist Best Headquarters, about a half hour walk away from the gentrification ravaged Gowanus Canal in the coastal elite bubble of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. That's right. And today we are missing Andy, our producer, who is still at Commie Camp. Uh, no, he's done with Commie Camp now. He's in San Francisco. Oh, he's doing research on Posadas. Yeah, though, he's right? at the library uh, yes. right now, probably as we speak. Good man. Well, he's still going to edit it for us, but I am proud to welcome into the studio our guest, Wilson Sherwin. Hey, y'all. Happy to be here. Thank you for coming. And Wilson is an activist, an educator, and a PhD student in sociology at the CUNY Grad Center. Is it fair to say an all-around badass as well? <laughs> Depends who you ask. If you asked me, I'd say, uh, considering the amount of trouble that you and I have gotten into, along with other people and our various organizing, uh, you know, activities, I'd say you could be a bit, you could be a little I, dangerous. I think, I think you qualify. It's true. We have, we have had some fun and gone into some raucous times. Hell yeah. And who is your thesis advisor there at the CUNY Grad Center? I'm working with the OG herself, Francis Fox Piven. Yes. Notorious FFP. Yes. Yes. Pew, pew, pew. It's funny because like all the liberals, they all freak out about Ruth ba- uh, Bader Ginsburg. But like, fuck <laughs> she... it. Francis Fox Piven is way more gangster than oh that Oh my old God, prone. a million times. I oh, will yeah. see your notorious RBG <laughs> and raise you our notorious FFP. Absolutely. The bane of the right wing. Or what? Several years back, right? Glenn Beck had a real, real hate on for, uh, for your advisor, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were burning effigies of her at tea party rallies, and she had to have like security detail. Damn. Yeah, she she really earned her stripes. Why do you th- what what do you think it was that made her this uh, right wing boogeyman? Uh, Glenn Beck traced it back to the article that she wrote in the Nation in 1966, and thought that because of that article, she was uh, single handedly responsible for the 2008 financial crisis. Awesome. Wow! In a leap of logic, <laughs> that uh, only... did he have all, have all the boards behind yeah, him when say, he did that? Yeah, yeah exactly. There were the many boards okay? involved. He needed like it took 17. Him that long to figure it out. <laughs> he needs 17 blackboards just to get from that to, to the end. <laughs> Uh, he also actually the the invisible committee right uh he also upped um what was it the coming insurrection by those very obscure like tacoonist anarchists in france and made them you know way more popular than they would have been otherwise totally he gets he gets books sold he does glenn beck was freaking out about communists before it was cool (laughs) (laughs) before we were even running shit in the streets Mm mm-hmm so uh, wilson is one of the rare people we know who actually grew up in new york city it's true, I did. A living, breathing, walking, talking city kid. Still here. A townie, as I like to be called. <laughs> <laughs> uh, except that in the high season, uh, it's like 4 million people coming into your town instead of like 4,000 right. Bar Harbor or something like that. Right. And I understand you had a cool living situation growing up. Well, I grew up in a loft in Tribeca, um, you know, in the mid 80s. And uh, when my parents moved in there, when my mom was pregnant with me, uh, there was a gay porn studio downstairs. Oh, and they yeah. 
very kindly as they were moving out, gave my mom their washer and dryer because they thought that a woman with a new child would definitely need a washer and dryer. So we had the gay porn studios washer and dryer my whole childhood. That's such, I love that solidarity, that social solidarity. It was, it was good solidarity. It was a different New York back then, you know, you could have children live above a gay porn studio in downtown Manhattan. Was it all finance bros and uh, NYU students and all that shit? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, beauty in the wreckage of post-industrial Tribeca. Hell yeah. Because of this little thing called white flight, uh, the five generations of my family, uh, including my mother and father, who were all from New York City, uh, managed to banish me and my childhood into the fucking suburbs. And uh, fortunately for me, my first, the first love of my life was not Jamie. It was actually a girl named Rachel. She lived uh, very close to here, just steps from here uh, in uh, Brooklyn Heights. And so I remember the mid-90s in New York City, and uh, boy, was it a different world. Even Brooklyn Heights, you couldn't go down to Camden Plaza over there. And I also remember, too, that, uh, you know, she's very, you know, she's doing very well in her life right now. Uh, But a lot of the people I met way back then, those city kids are, like, super fucked in the head and out of rehab, like, totally crazy. I just want to thank you or, like, (laughs) applaud you for being so (laughs) well-adjusted. Well, yeah, it was kind of brutal. I mean, you know, like my childhood was bookended by the AIDS crisis. And I spent like the last few months of my life in utero at the AIDS ward in St. Vincent's where my mom's best friend was dying. Oh, Jesus. And like everyone she knew died in a matter of years. And then, you know, my senior year of high school, 9-11. So it was like kind of wild uh, 17 years, right? Uh, and the towers were not far from your... Uh your home yeah just like we were like right at the cutoff of where folks had to be evacuated so new york has definitely changed a lot it certainly um makes me nostalgic for the ways that people were able to make do in that time and you know the art they were able to create and i am not 15 anymore but i miss the um ability that i had back then as a 15 year old to just be able to walk into a bodega in manhattan and buy cigarettes in a 40 and drink it in the streets, which was oh really God. real back then. It was, it was great. Yeah. My first experience of coming to New York City was uh, visiting my friends from camp because I went to an arts camp in New Jersey. As one does. It's very, a very Jewy place. And I had some friends who lived in the city who were city kids. And uh, yeah, I would, co- I would take the bus from Hartford when I was in high school and visit my friends. And there was this one kid who was like three years younger than the rest of us. He was like 13. This is a new story. Named Eli. Eli Wing. Shout out to Eli Wing. And uh, he had the bottom floor of his parents' brownstone in Park Slope. And uh, that was the first place I ever smoked weed and got... No, actually, the second time I ever smoked weed, the first time I got stoned off weed. So, like, we climbed up to the roof. I don't know where his parents were. I never saw them. That's city Uh, parents for you. (laughs) We climbed up to the roof. We smoked a bunch of weed. I think I was, like... 15 or 16 at the time and then it was kind of hard for me to climb back down because there was a ladder uh but i did i remember we went to, we went out to this place called pino's they had really good pizza and we went there twice that night we had two pizza dinners and we went to prospect park we smoked some more weed and then we came back and my friends all jammed because they had a little band and they would jam in uh eli's basement and they were jamming on some pixie songs and oh, yeah. i just remember sitting in front of the big speaker that the music was coming out of and it was like tactile like i could feel it i was like 
God fucking damn it, I love the Pixies. <laughs> Wilson, did you have any uh, experiences similar to that? Um, I, I hear you're going to educate us on the true origins of the Nutcracker because that's something that oh, we true. enjoy drinking at the uh, beach. And I think we, we talked about it a yeah. couple episodes ago, but yeah. maybe we don't, like, we don't even know why it's called a Nutcracker. So maybe you could enlighten us. Before she does, just it, you make it sound so benign. It was a hard correction. Like, she texted me. She's like, I'll fucking explain to you what a fucking Nutcracker is, you dumb fucking schmucks. You fucking bridge and tunnel scum. I may have just not had coffee when I sent that text <laughs> message, so forgive me. We've all been there. Um, uh, no, well... So um, I lived in Harlem for a number of years during and after college and right next to the polo grounds. And the folks in the polo grounds are very uh, proud of their Nutcracker, uh, being Nutcracker originators. And Uh. that it really came about as like a drink for the Rucker Playground events. And the, I guess the now the sort of story is that following the 2008 crisis, that they started trickling down like throughout the city that more and more people were kind of looking for like alternative economy things, uh. and that um, it used to be the only pla- the only time you could get a Nutcracker in Brooklyn was at the West Indian Day Parade, but now they're all over the place. Interesting. So that was that was my only little addendum. Mm. It wasn't. Oh, that's that's Forget interesting. Forget the sharing economy. We want the bathtub economy because <laughs> that's definitely where that booze comes from. Uh, what about what were those things, big that they were uh, delivering uh, several years back? Oh, Frosties. Frosties. The pH. Do you know Frosties? <laughs> Remember this? No. Oh, it's a similar thing. Oh my yeah, god, god, it like blew up on the internet. It was just like pretty similar, I guess. It was like an alcoholic slushy that would get you fucked up, <laughs> and it uh, it you you had to order them through Instagram. But it ended very quickly once people started blogging about it, like, obviously, because it's wildly illegal. Man, the blogs have just ruined everything good about New York. I know. They we, have. We like, touched on that a couple These people have no fucking decency. So just to make things clear for the listeners, you would go to Instagram and you'd order it, right? And a guy yeah, would call. you send them a message and, and they, they would deliver you a melting alcoholic slushy, and you would post it on Instagram probably and feel really cool. And get also really fucked up. And get really drunk. So speaking, or you could just add, you know, grain alcohol to a slushie that you get from 7-Eleven. <laughs> right? And it would probably have approximately the same uh, outcome. The, I think the rumor was that it was actually uh, lean, like it had codeine in it. But I don't think that was ever actually true. Yeah, that would um, be way too expensive and hard yeah, to right? mass Not distribute. in 2012. Yeah. Probably, probably not. Um, do you know why they're called nutcrackers? I don't. I Maybe... Uh, Maybe because of the, I don't know, the shape or, I don't know. I've got two theories about that. They fuck you up so much. I mean, I've definitely seen them take down, like, (laughs) six foot five, 250 pound dudes, like, just topple like a tree from, like, maybe one or two nutcrackers. (laughs) Maybe they're called that because you fall down and break your nuts. That could be possible. Or maybe, also maybe, uh, it's named after the classic ballet. With the dance of the sugar plum fairies, because mm. they do contain lots and lots of sugar. West Indian uh, guys, I think, are really pretty hyped on uh, on that particular uh, piece of ballet. So, I mean, <laughs> I think that, 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 that's totally plausible. Um, speaking of getting really fucked up, uh, Jamie is breaking the internet right now with <laughs> an incredible story that she wrote for Rolling Stone about a incredible experience that she had just the other day. Oh, my God. It was so dark. Uh, would you want to tell folks a little bit what happened without going through the whole thing, which they can read about in a wonderful fashion on rollingstone.com? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, 
I attended this uh, festival that was like a combined uh, music, indie music thing and a TED Talk featuring all the heroes of the Radical Center, oh, not God. limited to, but including uh, Grover Norquist, <sighs> Steven Pinker, <sighs> Hillary Clinton, Gulag. and that fucking sex robot, Tom Perez. Gulag. Sex gulag. He goes in the sex gulag. He is pretty oh, yeah. hot. It's like if... Somebody were to design like a male sex robot mm. designed to appeal to like the hashtag, the women of the hashtag resistance, <laughs> the nasty women. Like, I don't <laughs> think it could get more perfect than Tom Perez 3000. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I went with uh, Will Meneker <laughs> and Matt Christman of Chapo Trap House. Shout out to a show you may not have heard of. Uh, we encourage everybody to check it out. It's called Chapo Trap House. <laughs> Uh, pretty funny stuff. Yeah, if you like the Antifada, you'll probably enjoy them. <laughs> it was um, good of us to give them the shout out. They really need it. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome, guys. Uh, and it was super fun. I guess um, I've done a lot of this kind of thing in my life, in my career, when I used to be a music and nightlife reporter. Jamie's and... saying that she's destroyed her brain with LSD. But yes, yeah, go I on. mean, partially, yes. But um, I mean, not only LSD, like other drugs, too. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, you, you got to mix it up sometimes. <laughs> but um yeah, I kind of stopped doing it for a while, not because I didn't like to, but because I got the sense that like people didn't really respect me because of it. And like my writing wasn't really being received in the way I wanted it to. And like, pe I mean, I, the problem is I made it look too easy. Yeah, you're just so good at it. I mean, you got what Jesus and Mary Chain uh, doing meth backstage. I did do meth with, with the uh, Jesus and Mary Chain with uh, Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips. I uh, did, yes. Getting we him did. what Molly was that? Yeah, we. Uh, I've I've done Molly with Wayne Coyne multiple times actually, and we played with a bunch of toys that he bought at the toy store that day in Austin, and it was uh, it was pretty fun, pretty weird. I I had fun meeting him and his 21 year old girlfriend. It was a uh, it was a good time. So this was not your first rodeo. No, but I, I stopped doing it for a very long time because uh, I sensed it was kind of ruining my career a little bit. And that was all anyone wanted to pay me to do at this point in time. It's like, I would like to write a serious op-ed about uh, the Democratic Party. And they're like, oh, haha. No, just here. Have have more drugs. Write about that. But um, You haven't done a PCP with uh, Lil Wayne yet. Uh, we're going to throw you in. Well, life is long. But uh, I, I kind of miss the gonzo journalism. And uh, since I, I mean, I stopped doing it before I pivoted to mainly writing about politics. And then uh, I've been writing mainly about politics since probably 2016, I would say. But um, I've always missed it and wanted to reincorporate it somehow into my current work. And uh, it was kind of a dream come true to do this for Rolling Stone because I grew up reading Hunter S. Thompson and wanting mm -hmm. to sort of uh, do, do my own like socialist feminist take on this uh, mm -hmm traditionally very masculine form of writing so it was uh super it was super fun it was super special um i convinced uh matt and will that uh i was a really good drug mom and nothing bad could happen when they were with me and uh that turned out to be true so it was uh i wouldn't say it was fun exactly but uh yeah it was it was fun <laughs> it was kind of fun the the event itself was horrible you can read all about it in rolling stone but it was funny um on the way up in the elevator when I told uh, Wilson that I saw Hillary Clinton on LSD, she was like, <laughs> "The look in her eyes." I thought you meant she. Well, either either scenario is horrifying, <laughs> to be but, honest. But the one you thought was—I uh... did think this meant that Hillary was on LSD oh for a second, God. and like for a second, I was like, "Oh, well, that might do her some good." And then I remembered, <laughs> like, 
you know drugs they're like technology they're like brain technology like they're only as good or bad as the hands that they're in and if hillary did lsd like you know took a little walk in the woods um i imagine it would be a lot like the time that tony soprano did peyote after murdering chris uh spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't uh, watched the sopranos (laughs) yet and uh and at the end you did this to yourself you should have watched and at the end he's just like a less conflicted murderer and goes on his way and that's do we need uh, Hillary? Do we need Hillary to be that self-actualized? Like, I, I don't, I don't think so. I feel like I'm bad tripping just thinking about being on acid around Hillary Clinton. Uh, it Jamie was really it. real. It was. It got dark for a minute. Like Ooh, at what the a buzz end, kill. there was this guy who was yelling, "Run again!" No, Hillary, uh, 2020. Hillary's a Run real away. progressive. No. She's been a progressive her whole life. I, I, and uh, I thought uh, it was this irony bro who'd come up to will and matt earlier and said oh i love your show i'm here ironically can we take a picture together and i and matt's like oh no that's a different guy and i didn't believe him and then the first guy came back and i realized they looked nothing like each other and that that guy yelling was for real and i just started laughing and crying hysterically at the same time well jamie went to war she fought some battles. You're welcome for my service. Some outer demons, <laughs> along with some inner demons. Some mostly outer demons. Mostly outer some demons. Some lesser demons. Um, so, but she fought them, and the better, better angels of her nature uh, brought her back. You know, from my side of the story, as uh, Jamie's partner, uh, and also somebody who knew about this escapade in advance, and was trying to get in touch with her throughout the day uh, to no avail, and was you know vaguely concerned because I know that Jamie She'd been arrested. Well, you never know. I mean, we're at a bad trip because there ja- were a lot of cops there. Jamie is like a very experienced psychonaut. Like I just I de- I knew she could handle this horrific experience, but I thought maybe if anything could break her. It would be like sitting there with like the, the tech and corporate elite just getting buzzwords like thrown at her face while just tripping face on Curriculum fucking product. Uh, Put uh, hope on the ballot. Uh, Putin's uh, so poodle. I was I was pretty I was a little worried for her, but uh, we it, finally got in touch and uh, she said, you know, it took a while for it to kick in, but it did kick in and everything went fine. It so, took all the skills at my disposal. For she, sure. she did a great job. And then there's an addendum to the story because, you know, this Rolling Stone story that came out. And then the Chapo episode that just dropped uh, yesterday about this, you know, makes all this media seem like a finished product. You know, this is very polished, you know, narrative with like some insight. in, And I think Jamie's story had some great insights and really, really funny moments in it. Um, Thanks, babe. It was great. Uh, And it's like I said, blowing up the Internet right now. But um, the actual process of producing that is absolutely fucking grueling. So like I went, it was raining like shit. She finally went back to Will Menneker's house. I took a car over there because I was at a buddy's house in Flatbush. The three of them were like, they were pretty, I think coming down at this point in time, but they were definitely watching Total Recall and like pounding <laughs> fucking beers like on the couch. Just like I'm sure much uh, weed was smoked at that uh, before that and uh, during and after. But like, you know, they, they really, you know, went through this this uh, intense battle. Uh, eventually, we went uh, we went home that night and Jamie actually managed to sleep. Then the next day, which was yesterday, she banged out for like 10 hours straight clack 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 (laughs) this is not easy to do folks like she was like a fucking writing machine don't try this at home yeah like dead ass like 10 fucking hours straight and i took the role because i am out of work right now and by the way sorry i do not normally take 
10 hours to write an article, but I was extremely fried the day after doing acid. So, oh yeah. Surprise, surprise. Well, I mean, your work is reflected in how good it is, but, uh, this kind of is a little segue to what we're going to be talking about today because I'm out of work right now because, uh, the company I was working for doing heavy construction slowed down. So I'm at home being the, uh, domestic dad in the household. And I'm proud to say, and I'm happy. And I've got no hangouts about this whatsoever. I made her tea, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Every time she needed water, came and got up for her. I helped her out as much as I could. I basically, I don't know, was like reproducing her social labor within the house <laughs> as she produced. The site of production was our household, and I was an integral part to that process of production. That's my woke bay, the invisible labor. Mm-hmm. So Behind every great woman, gonzo journalist, there is an equally great man cooking her breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's right. So, Jamie, I think the most horrifying thing that you had to face was the uh, queen godmother of hashtag resistance people everywhere, Hillary Clinton, uh, in the flesh on acid. Again, applause for being able to actually do that without jumping off a bridge or something like that. Um, what If we're going to talk about domestic labor, we're going to talk about issues with the gender division of labor, we're going to talk about historical and present fights for justice. Um, do you want to maybe explain for folks, Wilson and Jamie, the difference between, say, Hillary Clinton's brand of feminism and your brands of feminism? Yeah. We or are they the same? Are they the same? <laughs> well, you were just in the belly of the beast. Do you want to? Oh, my God. I mean, I should start out by saying that I'm not one of those psychotic people who, like, obsessively hates everything about Hillary. <laughs> There's actually a I lot. I mean, no offense to anyone in the room who might uh, be like that. So for the first time, there's actually more Goyim in the studio than there are Jews. So Wilson and I are hate so pure that uh, we outnumber you on that. Oh, my God. We forgot to ask the question. Ask the fucking are question. You, and also, are you implying that Jews hate is less pure than everyone else's? I mean, Glenn Beck might think so. I've never read the protocols of the Elders on Zion. I don't know. these. I mean, I'm, I'm open. You know. I mean, if you count self-hate, it's probably the most oh, that's, pure. That's true, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, speaking of which, my hate is incredibly pure today, having been purified in the fires of the neoliberal death machine that I faced yesterday. So let's, let's ask the fucking question, and then we're going to get on. All right. Here we go. Wilson, how pure is your hate today? Oh, man, my hate is pretty fucking pure. It's, it's a boiling, raging, yes. feminazi yes. hatred that is just pure as can be. Oh, I love the question because every answer, like, that's either qual- like quantitative, like people give a number, or they make awesome metaphors like scintillate, like boiling hot, like, oh, mm-hmm. so evocative. Hate is just such a wonderful emotion. Yeah, I think it's really, uh, it's really underrated. Maybe even misunderstood by, uh, you know, the people making the DSM or whatever. And we're pro-fem Nazis. If there's any Nazis we like, it's fem Nazis. Absolutely. That, you know, it's funny. They've really stopped calling us that since, like, Nazis have come back into fashion mm. in a big way. <laughs> it's a bridge yeah. too far, even they're, for the right. They're erasing fem Nazi voices. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so, as I was saying, um, I don't hate everything about Hillary. Uh I think she's a strong woman. I admire that about her. She's clearly very smart, very tough. Uh, I like her... Uh, Beware, super predator. She's tough. I like her witch-like cackle. I could only hope to someday have a cackle half as uh, <laughs> harsh, grating, and uh, castrating as hers. 
Um, and that is a compliment coming from me because I am a feminazi as well. Oh, I'm all um, numbered now. <laughs> and she's dealt with a lot of uh, bullshit, a lot of sexist bullshit throughout her life, which uh, I certainly have empathy for. Uh, but she's she's not on our side and she never will be. Yeah. Yeah. What Definitely separates not. her from uh, from the good feminazis of the world? Well, I guess I have a way that I like to kind of distinguish it that uh, is pretty basic, which I think that the kind of bourgeois feminists, you know, that Hillary Clinton is a kind of model example of want their slice of the pie, right? They think that if they get a slice of the pie, the world will be somehow more equal. Or maybe they want to have like a little bit more of a say in like what ingredients go into the pie. Mm. And I think the the radical feminists or the, you know, Marxist feminists or the socialist feminists, depending on, on who's talking, want to look at the whole process and say, actually, we want the whole bakery Fuck and yeah. we think that it's immoral, the labor that's going into it and the way that different people get different remuneration for their work and we think it's like not not environmentally viable the way these ingredients are being sourced and that you know this bourgeois feminist kind of obsession with oh if i just also have a a slice of this pie i'll be fine is is just totally crazy um uh valerie solanas has this friend of the show friend of the show <laughs> has the i think the most perfect way of describing the difference between um radical feminists and bourgeois feminists and she says we don't want to co-manage the ship pile hell yeah and that's I like that that's it to me right like we we need to radically reconfigure it all not just co-manage this shithole and even as somebody who, if Valerie Solanas had had her way, uh, would have been uh, summarily executed after my sperm was taken from me, I agree with that sentiment. <laughs> that's, really, that's really big of you, babe. A, a society for cutting up men sounds harsh, but, you know, I, I can roll with it. That's, that's what we like to hear. Solidarity forever. That is the Antifada mindset. An administrative note, this is being uh, recorded on a Monday evening, and by the time this episode arrives in your podcast listening app of choice we will have released the world historical debut of acid motherfucking kitchen talk about fire we got acid we got a kitchen we got pizza we got sexy jamie peck dressed as a pizza we got everything you've ever wanted folks so um, I guess we really have to release it now. And even really. if you didn't go to Ozzy Fest on acid, watching the video will make you feel like you're on acid having a horrible time. Well, th- this video is we're having a good time. No, let's sell it like like they're going to be horrified by it. Like it's like ringing oh, or something yeah. like that. Like, oh, acid kitchen. You have to show it to 10 people or you will die in 10 days. That's a really good way to get patrons, actually, babe, because you have to be a patron to watch the video. Threaten their lives. Oh, P.S. Join Antifada. Give us money. Our show relies on your support. Um, And we've got some, like, pretty cool stuff. As that you get if you're a patron, right? We've babe? got a cool little Discord. It's uh, growing by the day. We've got some fun conversations. Tell them what Discord is. Discord is a little app you put on your phone. It's a chat room. It's a chat room. It's a chat room with, with different, different channels. channels. It's like a Slack. It's like a Slack. For communists. For communists. It's all communists all the time. 
uh, there's a couple of socialists, but we kind of, you know, put them to the side. They're, they're, they're able to chime in every they're once marginal in a while. Characters. We marginalize socialist voices. Sometimes we uh, do a voice chat We do in a there. little voice uh, chat in Probably there. not as much as we could or should. You could but, talk to uh, us about our show and tell us how much we suck or give us suggestions on other shows. Sometimes the guests from our shows will pop in. And be really upset that uh, we were talking shit on them <laughs> about their performance on our show. Uh, also, you get Acid Kitchen, which is going to be one of uh, many videos we're going to be producing with all of the Patreon money that we've been just sacking away there. You know, the thousands and millions of Patreon dollars that we have in our production budget now. So mm. there's a lot of perks to becoming an Antifada super soldier. And one of them is that... You will not get the wall. Boom. So, yeah, I like the way that Adolf Reed talks about neoliberal identity politics as well. Um, now, I don't agree with him on everything, but uh, he's got a very good analysis of this where, like, I mean, I'm wildly paraphrasing, but um, according to neoliberal identity politics, um, it's enough to maintain the hierarchy of our society if the ruling class has a proportional representation of women, uh, people of color, LGBT people, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas uh, you know, socialist feminism is about saying like, no, that's not enough for us. Um, we want radical equality for all of humanity and not just the lucky few women. And like, also, we're not, I'm not going to pretend that, I mean, Marxism is at the fulcrum of our analysis. Um, and I'm not going to pretend like um, I have a ton of common interests with a woman who is like the CEO of the company that I work for, right. who's exploiting me. Because, yeah, we might have some, some overlapping interests as women living in patriarchy. But um, on a very basic level, we are in conflict with one another. And um, neoliberal identity politics tries to conceal that any way it can now some might push back on that and say well oh you don't appreciate the gains that women have made in the workplace or there being more you know congresswomen and senators who are women and almost a you know president of the united states who is a woman um where would you the almost president the almost president uh she did win the popular That's vote true. and if it wasn't for russian comey she would have won the goddamn fucking election that was the takeaway from the aussie fest thing as i understand it yeah that was but, the primary uh, takeaway what, from her talk what would you uh how would you to respond to somebody who said like oh well so you just want women to wait for like some utopian fucking socialist revolution what are we supposed to do now with your marxist feminism Besides, say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> I think that uh, in a lot of ways, you know, we've had 50 years of feminism, of, of a, like, go to work and you'll be liberated. And we've seen that that really doesn't pan out, right? Like, women are in huge debt. They don't have maternity leave. They... Uh, are disproportionately poor. They're still, you know, getting their asses kicked by their spouses on the regular. I mean, just yesterday was like a horrific day of, it seemed like every news story was about women getting shot, like in Toronto in California. Right. I mean, like the level of misogyny hasn't necessarily really been radically transformed by women entering the workforce and like being bosses and being CEOs. And um, 
I don't know. I don't think I answered that. I well. mean, I think yeah, some gains have definitely been made, right? Like I like it that I have the option to do what I do for work instead of having to be like barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, which is not uh, something that I'm terribly interested in. And Jamie also appreciates that we use uh, abortion as birth control in our house. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, no, I, uh, shout out to IUDs. It's uh, kept me baby free for uh, quite some time now. But um, amen. Hell yeah. Um, this episode I'll give an amen to that too. brought to you by IUD <laughs> Marina. The letters I, U, and D. I'll give a hallelujah to that. Um, uh, yeah, like I like it that it's no longer acceptable for your boss to like smack you on the ass and call you sweetie or whatever. Like there certainly have been gains made. I mean, I like having But the... like since when is that not acceptable? It's like not acceptable since me too, since like 6 months ago. I mean, part of like what we're seeing is that that's still like totally widespread. Oh yeah, for sure. But like I think it's definitely changed a lot from how it used to be and it's, we still have a pretty long way to go. Um I think we've made all the progress we're going to make in terms of the law, right? Like um I think it's a mistake to say that we just need better and better laws and more like harsh penalties for this that's a total uh bad that's a, that's a bad road that socialist feminists don't want to go down um but like at least we have laws against sexual harassment now like that's not a that's a good thing it's not it's never going to do it's never going to take us all the way um and i think that's a critique that i have made in the past of the me too movement which uh i'm i'm like i, I have critical support for it right like um i think it's really good that people are talking about this stuff i think it's really good that people are feeling less alone and telling their stories and raising awareness which you know a lot of men that i've talked to were like totally bowled over by just like the volume and severity of these stories and like it, it's even worse than i thought it was right yeah. and like i already thought it was pretty fucking bad just judging from my own experience but um you know they say vulgar Marxism explains uh, 90% of the world, and the other 10% is not nothing. But I think most of the discourse we've seen around Me Too kind of stays within that 10% and doesn't really go outside of it to see, um, like, these are crimes of power, power imbalance. And the way you fix it, um, you get, I mean, you're going to get a lot more bang for your buck, at least, if you fix the power imbalances rather than trying to change people's hearts and minds and raise consciousness. So, like... Things like um, socialized medicine, socialized healthcare, um, they reduce women's dependence on men and, and on their jobs and increase their ability to, I mean, unions, obviously a huge thing, um, and increase our ability to stand up to bosses and husbands and whoever else is uh, abusing us from a position of authority. And I, just to jump in, and I think that uh, the ability of a woman to gain the uh, dubious distinction of uh, independence under uh, capitalist society uh, by, you know, getting a job and uh, being able to actualize themselves in, you know, the ways that capitalism allows people to do that uh, is a, all is a, a well and good thing. But capitalism as a contradictory system means that women are allowed in the workplace now, which is good. However, it means that more and more households are surviving on two incomes. So now you have a lot more wage labor being spread across society and people working a lot of hours um, when, when ultimately our politics here at the Antifada are anti-wage labor politics. So it's good for people to be allowed into that wage labor market, but we need to have a critique of that. 
Uh, you're working on a research project, Wilson, now, right? That kind of uh, analyzes this historically? Yeah. Um, I've been doing a lot of archival work and writing about the National Welfare Rights Organization, which was this really rad social movement in the 60s and 70s of mostly welfare moms um, getting in the streets, in the courtrooms, um, and taking over welfare offices and demanding basically the paychecks that they felt that they were due. And um, they've been remembered in these really kind of liberal ways. So a lot of folks who have written about them talk about them as kind of like maternalist. They were just moms who wanted to be able to stay home with their kids. And it was important that they were black moms who were sort of reclaiming the right to stay home with their kids um, when white women had had this privilege. And in going back and looking at um, you know, the movement, I found all this incredible stuff where they really kind of take this, you know, they're very different than Solanus in a lot of ways, but where they take this, we don't want to co-manage the shit pile position. And they're, they really distinguish themselves from like two movements that they were sandwiched between the civil rights movement and the mainstream feminist movement by their refusal and their rejection of work. That is definitely anti-fada mindset politics right there. So this was, uh, would you, is it fair to say this was a uh, grassroots direct ash, action uh, mass-based uh, struggle movement? Yeah, I mean, the NWRO formed in 1966 and kind of because it saw that um, this guy, George Wiley, wanted to do something about poverty and he saw that there were so many independent grassroots welfare rights organizations that had popped up all over the country. There were like more than 200 of them um, who were really militant and really mobilizing around the issue of poverty. And so it kind of came out of that, although the organization itself maybe wasn't exactly grassroots. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and like, forgive me if this is a boring wonky question uh, listeners, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about the structure of socialist organizations lately. I've been thinking a lot about the structure of DSA versus uh, one like ISO. Like, how did they balance um, sort of the centralist idea with um, having all the different chapters be autonomous? Yeah, they were pretty autonomous and then had uh, national conventions every once in a while. But there certainly was no, like, top-down directive. Um you know, on this question, so Frances Fox Piven, my advisor, was really involved in the organization. She was like a theorist and an activist involved with it. And she wrote about it later. And like the big insight that she got out of it was the sort of broader one about social movements, about um, the kind of tendency towards oligarchy or towards um, a kind of static institutionalization that she felt, she and her partner Richard Cloward felt, is really unfortunate because all of these resources and all of these efforts get put into maintaining the organization rather than actually drawing from what the, the real source of power of poor people is. Like that the source of power of poor people isn't organizational, it's actually disruptive. And so in all this focus on like creating the organization and maintaining the organization, it like stifled the militancy. I think that uh, there's a lot of parallels with that when you uh, look at the labor movement, totally. for example. Uh, and obviously these are struggles that are directly um, 
or indirectly against the wage system as it exists, right? So it would make sense that there's this kind of um, there's this kind of uh, push and pull, this dialectic between grassroots militancy, but also the real institutional and organizational capacity uh, necessary to to maintain something. Another question I have is, uh, you know, what's the the context? You know, the, you you mentioned these other uh, civil rights movements. What's the historical context in the in the sixties and seventies that makes this uh, a point of struggle and a moment of struggle? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think people are familiar with the ways that the sixties was a really turbulent time, and the welfare rights movement is really interesting to me in the way that they kind of reject the solutions that other movements put forward. So, you know, the the freedom budget that A. Philip Randolph and a lot of other major civil rights luminaries who were, you know, socialists of varying stripes um, felt was the solution to the crisis of life for black Americans. And the center of that to them was jobs, 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 full employment. And jobs are going to be the solution to all of the problems that black America is facing. And, you know, similarly, like Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, came out in 63, really saying, like, the solution to women's problems is leaving the confines of the house and going into the workforce. And these women, I think, in a lot of ways, like, really presage a movement that gets a lot more attention for being radical, which is like the the Wages for Housework movement, mm-hmm. or something like the Combahee River Collective, and looking at the ways that women are really um, stuck in the shittiest jobs and still have a ton of responsibility at home. And that for these women who had been working all their lives, like more work was not the solution to them. It was constantly like their refrain was more money now. And our, our problems aren't going to be solved by jobs, but by income. That was really their emphasis was income is the solution, not work. Yeah, that reminds me of um, some stuff I read in my Sock Bem reading group, actually, from uh, some early Bolshevik thinkers, where they were trying to figure out how to bring women into this proletarian struggle. And there were some who thought that women needed to become workers first. Basically, they needed to become proletarianized so they could fight alongside the men in the factories and wherever the shop floor was. And there were others who thought that... um, that was not a necessary intermediary step. Um, you know, they could turn the the domestic sphere into a site of struggle as well. And that's um, that's what I think of when you talk about the wages for housework movement that started in the seventies. Yeah, totally. And and so like I don't know. I want to I want to like get there, but I also just want to point out like a couple of other things that were going on in that in that time that I think were maybe influential at least sort of in the air, if not directly. Yeah, it definitely like presages the wages for housework stuff. And um, I think that we see these kinds of like threads in the movement of a lot of fundamental socialist and socialist feminist thinking that have really been kind of covered over by all of the scholars who've looked at it. Kristen Ross has this amazing quote when she talks about the way sociologists have talked about 68 in France, where she says that, sociologists play the function to history that police play to the present. Mm. So basically in saying, uh, nothing to see here, folks, keep it moving. And I really feel like that's what people have done with the welfare rights movement. There's been this kind of like cover up of how really fundamentally radical their demands for income decoupled from labor 
were. What are the social conditions at, at heart here, you know, that these women are responding to in this movement? And why did they respond to it in the particular way that they did? I think that one of the things that's cool about them is they're really responding to a lot of political economic transformations. So the kind of specter of technological unemployment factored really big in their thinking. So the Great Society is happening at this moment. That must have been uh, a bit of a, a top-down sort of state impetus to these people to start thinking differently, right, about their relationship to work and to the state and their demands. Yeah, it was a moment where there was actually a kind of generous expansion of the welfare state and a belief that this had to happen really, you know, in order to quell the riots. And... um and, you know, there was also a lot of mobilization, like on the part of the Panthers, around the idea of wagelessness as a viable political position, right? Like the radical position of the lumpen proletariat. It's not just the people in the factories who are important to society or who are contributing to society. Yeah, um, I was really interested in um, that part because... Um... I think when we think of organizing traditionally, you think of organizing in the workplace where you have your labor to withhold uh, as you see fit to extract concessions from capital. But um, when people are not employed, like how do you organize people who are not in the traditional workplace? Um, what are the pressure points there, the sort of fulcrums of power? Well, they had a lot of power because there were actual offices that you had to go to in order to, you know, deal with all of the bureaucratic stuff of welfare. And I think that was certainly kind of a choke point that gave them a space to meet in, a space to really get the goods and to see how direct action was getting the goods. You know, walk home with a check for $100 in 1968. It was a lot of fucking money. But they also had really, I think, kind of sophisticated understandings of the ways that their reproductive labor was both creating the labor force for the future and, you know, keep in mind that this was during Vietnam and, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the horrible senator who decided that the cure for all of the problems with the quote unquote Negro family was to send black men to Vietnam to teach them how to be real men. And, and these women, you know, were aware of the fact that their labor in producing these children was being used either to send them to the factories or to send them to Vietnam. And and I think, you know, it's a it's a particularly cool moment because a lot of mainstream feminists or even socialist feminists were sort of grappling with how do we intervene in the question of Vietnam? Like, it's not really about us. It's not a women's question. We have to think about, like, women's issues. And, and these women, it, for them, it was so clear how this is obviously a woman's issue, you know, how, how reproductive labor is the kind of central point in all of these social issues. Yeah. Can you say more about the reproductive labor? Because um, I feel like this is something a lot of people miss. Um, when you hear people talk about welfare now, like it's just uh, money for nothing. It's dependency. It's a cycle of dependency. And it's hardworking tax dollars going to these layabouts. Yeah. Like, do you want to dissect that idea a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think I want to be a little careful here because a lot of people in their interpretation of uh, the welfare rights movement have understood it as like these women wanted to be housewives in the same way that white middle class women were allowed to be housewives throughout history. And and I don't think that's exactly what they were asking for. Partially, they're bringing attention to the ways that their care labor is labor 
and deserves remuneration, right? Like raising kids and putting food on the table. And they especially pointed out how much incredibly hard work this is on a really tight budget, right? That this is like one of the hardest tasks in the world is how to feed and figure out a family. But beyond that, and this is the thing that I think a lot of folks have missed that is really powerful, is that what they saw as the work that they needed to be doing and that that these welfare checks allowed them to do was political work and was organizing. And the change that they felt they could make in their communities and that they saw themselves being able to make was really the thing. And, you know, you like go back and reading these newspapers, these testimonies from these women who were like, yeah, I was kind of lost in my life and I joined this organization and I never really spoke very much. And now I'm like the leader of the state chapter and no one can get me to shut up. And I've like totally found my calling. And, you know, I think that this is like dichotomy of uh, are they going to be like out in the public at a job or are they going to be stuck at home with the kids is a really false one, right? That that they actually were in the public um, doing a lot of amazing community work that was possible because of these checks. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. So you said that these uh, welfare offices were this this node, this point where uh, these activists, these militants could go and be disruptive. Uh, what did it mean in this context to be disruptive? What was their power to disrupt? Well, what they really disrupted was the funding. So Francis Fox Piven and Richard Clower did this study where they found that only uh, half of the people who were eligible for welfare benefits were actually receiving them because of a lot of kind of bureaucratic mess and a lot of people were getting turned away who shouldn't have gotten turned away. And the disruption that they caused was really to flood the offices demanding all of these benefits that they were owed. And the amount of funding that then was being spent, both the number of people who were receiving checks and the amount of checks just skyrocketed in a number of years. I think in one year they managed to get over $50 million from the city of New York alone. You know, in the 60s, this is a huge amount of money. So this really caused a kind of crisis situation, right? And this was really the epitome of Piven and Cloward's crisis theory, right? In order to bring about a federalized system of welfare benefits, because all of these meager, racist, state-based programs needed to be overhauled, and that the way to do this was to force basically the federal government to step in because the states couldn't afford these mounting costs anymore. And they hoped that they would implement a universal basic income. There you go. And how did that work? Like, I know they swung away from this strategy at one point because um, other people argued that it it was easier to create a crisis than uh, bring about a solution to the crisis. And I guess they just didn't trust the federal government to solve it in any kind of uh, positive way. Like, um, how did how did it work out for them? Well, it didn't work out great, partially because of, you know, I think at least, you know, this is Francis's explanation, the emphasis on organization. So they spent a lot of money and a lot of time trying to really build this organization. You know, you have the kind of decline of the mass mobilization in the street. One of the ways that they were able to sort of threaten the government and get what they wanted was because there were so many riots going on at the time. And and they quite literally say, like, if you don't want our sons in the streets burning shit down, give us more checks. And and with the kind of subsiding of mass mobilization and militancy that was going on across the country in different movements, I think part of their threat was uh, less, 
you know, less weighty. And um, Nixon proposes this uh, guaranteed annual income that was in, you know, 1971, that was very, very, very small. It was smaller than the annual welfare benefits in most states, except for like the two cheapest southern states. And the NWRO fought it very vehemently. And, you know, in in this narrative, as it's told, one of the big things that's always left out is that they fought it really vehemently because it had work requirements attached Mm. to it. Interesting. And so they were pissed off that the amount was so low and they refused to work for that money. Right. So just to play devil's advocate for a minute, uh, there are plenty of people out there who say uh, you have to work. Uh, you know, if people aren't working, society will cease to function and, uh, everyone will starve to death. Um, and like the only way to make people work is to basically force them on pain of starving to death. So like, uh, how's that even going to work if nobody has to go to work? Like, won't we all just be like sitting around just like masturbating and playing video games all day? Like what's going to happen doing drugs? Like, like what? That all sounds great. That's my plan. (laughs) Masturbate in the morning, read theory in the afternoon, <laughs> do drugs at night, but, do not, drugs at night. but never be a masturbator, uh, theorizer, or drug user. It's going to be so lit. So yeah, now we're getting to sort of the political horizon that's opened up by this uh, sort of anti-work um, kind of ideology that arises out of the struggle, right? This sense that more jobs aren't the solution, even you know, better paying jobs aren't the solution. And in fact, it's work itself that is alienating. It's wage labor itself that's alienating. Um, it seems to me that there is this sort of political horizon that opens up in this period of real abundance you know, for most Americans, white Americans especially, mm-hmm. in the 1960s and early 70s, not just of jobs but also of material goods. You have capitalism through automation, you know, advancing, and you have, I think, in, you know, popular culture, and I think in the popular imagination, this real sense, and even Valerie Solanas talks about a fully automated uh, society, right? You have this real sense that the political horizon is the abolition of wage labor as this sort of, as Jamie said, uh, necessary evil that you have to do on pain of starvation and death. Yeah, Totally. I mean, I think that, like, the moment of technological change is really important to this story and of the clear sense of automation, right? I mean, you know, the percentage of Americans who worked in agriculture 100 years ago that we needed in order to produce the amount of food that we eat was well over 50%. And so, you know, with automation, with technological advancements, we increase our productivity and our ability to produce the things that we need and the thing that i think is really the question is how do we redistribute access to them and and access to free time as a really important aspect of our lives that we need to struggle for um and and you know i think like a lot of people have have sort of tried to describe the care labor that they're doing as work as a way to justify this um and i think that the political stuff is also something that they see as sort of work or at least a productive contribution to society so i think this gets to one of the fundamental contradictions of capitalism right uh and also one i think the misconceptions about what work is nowadays right because when we go and we talk about a post-work society and when these women are rejecting work 
right? They're not rejecting, as you said, like productive things like, you know, caring for children or uh, having a nice house or even going out and, you know, making a tangible good or providing a tangible service. Volunteering in their community. Volunteering in the community, doing politics. What they're rejecting or they're, they're trying to reject and critiquing was uh, and is today this contradiction between uh, what is produced productive and useful but also what is exploitative because the the particular type of labor that they were critiquing then and we can critique now is wage labor right so you do this work and you spend your time and you use your brains and you use your muscles the end product of that goes off and is owned by somebody else and all you get is a paycheck that allows you to just reproduce yourself for another day now to say that you want to get rid of work doesn't mean that nothing will be done it means that we want to eliminate the social relationship that means that there are the people who actually produce things and the people who exploit the labor and take that as profits. Totally. Yeah. I mean, they, they I think their examples are really kind of illuminating in that uh, they often were doing like the same exact tasks at home in taking care of children and cleaning the house as they would then be forced to do in a lot of these workfare programs and being sort of pushed into domestic labor where you're doing the same exact activity. You're mopping a floor, you're wiping an ass, you're cooking a meal, except you have, you know, I mean, Mark's got this totally right that, that not having control over both the process and the product of your labor is deeply alienating, you know, and, and really kind of separates you from the thing that makes you human. And so if you don't have the autonomy over what you're cooking, you don't get to eat it after you cooked it. Right. You don't get to stay in touch with the children after you raised them. You don't have any say in the disciplinary tactics that you use, right? This is like, it's, it's having that, it's the epitome of alienated labor. Yeah, so I also wanted to ask a question about uh, wages against housework, because um, what we have been talking about um, sounds a lot like wages for housework, I guess. Um, Just the idea that like all of this reproductive labor uh, is done in service of capital, right? Because you really can't wall off the uh, traditional workplace from the domestic sphere when you are reproducing the next generation of workers or even the current generation of workers so that they can just keep on going back to their shitty jobs at the end of the day, every day. Um, and I really like the way uh, Silvia Federici kind of flipped it on its head and called it wages against housework mm-hmm. because um, that even goes a step further than the model where you know we're all contributing productively to capitalist society and we should be getting paid for it, whether that work is in a factory or in the home, whereas wages against housework, I mean, I read it as sort of a a provocation, right? Because she wasn't saying we just need to get welfare for the housework that we're doing. She was saying we need to figure this the fuck out and eventually abolish it. Mm -hmm. And um, that, again, reminds me of early Bolshevik thinkers like um, like Kolontai talked about this quite a bit Mm -hmm. and others. Um, The idea that eventually this kind of... uh, Sisyphusian drudgery, right, should be socialized to the degree that that's possible, which um, it is, uh, and have like socialized uh, childcare, um, cafeterias, totally. right? Like, how much time do we all spend yeah. just like cooking our food and then cleaning up afterwards so that we can, you know, live to fight another day? And I think that is uh, really, I mean, it's exciting to me because I fucking hate cleaning my house. Oh, yeah, uh, we do. As anyone who's seeking it. 
Nick will know. We won't show you pictures. They're not safe for work. Yeah, just just take our word for it. It's uh, it's not great. But like, um, yeah. What do you what do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really love about um, the folks who are involved in wages for or against housework, their articulation is when they're faced with this kind of question of like, well, it's too expensive. How would we ever afford that? And I think that this is really congruous with the NWRO's analysis, which is their response was, it's not our fucking job to figure out what is too expensive for the system. If it's too expensive for the system, you know, and and the welfare rights movement fought for this right to live. That was what they wanted. If it's too expensive to guarantee people a right to live, then change the system, right? (laughs) right? It's not our job to figure out what is within the constraints of this terrible world. Part of, and I think that this is like a similarity that they both share is this kind of crisis tactic, right? By, you know, the wages for housework or against housework folks wanted to make housework too expensive. That was the point. If we all have to get paid for it, it will be too expensive and we will have to figure something else out. And that's a very similar technique that the welfare rights movement had, right? Like, okay, if it's too expensive, figure it out a different way. But like, we deserve the right to live decoupled from employment. And as I understand it too, uh, like Jamie said before, this sort of false dichotomy between the shop floor and the kitchen floor, right? Um, it's making that labor, that free, unpaid, remunerated, unremunerated labor of the domestic sphere visible Mm -hmm. and saying that this is, you know, it may seem free to you, but there are millions upon millions of women and men and others who are doing these activities day in and day out. And we refuse to be invisible anymore. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that goes back to, um, the materialist argument as well, right? Because, um, you know, I think we need both uh, ideals, uh, ethics and uh, materialism. And one thing I like about Marxism is it's really got both. Like these are things that I know in my heart are the right things to do. And they're also the things that make the most sense. And um, one way that that is true is, um, you know, if you look at this, uh, this housework that people want to uh, get rid of to the degree that they can, it's more efficient to socialize it. Mm-hmm. It just is. In terms of like the number of hours of labor per human, uh, it's just, there's, there's no contest. And then you look at, oh, well, where can, we, where, where can we find some give, right? Like what is happening here? Where are the resources being wasted? They could be going to this more efficient, efficient system. And if you abolish profit, right, if you stop letting one class of people a small class of people survive on the uh, stolen surplus labor of uh the rest of us then like these things seem a lot more feasible right yeah i mean i think that's definitely that's that's the real answer to your question earlier right like there is one class of people who don't do anything and live high on the hog or whatever the hell the saying is welfare queens you mean right <laughs> and and they're capitalists right and uh, what did uh, reagan call them the uh the the, uh, the strapping bucks uh buying uh steaks and driving their cadillacs you know the, mm-hmm. these welfare kings yeah it was very racially uh anyways i'm sorry capitalists Bro- are the real welfare yeah. royalty yeah. well that's the yeah. irony of it yeah. right yeah, and absolutely. and reagan really represents you know the backlash to this which of course we cannot um you know, gloss over this, um, even throwing the, the word welfare out there 
just triggers a lot of people, even, even liberals. You you mentioned Moynihan. Trigger uh, the libs. Yeah. Uh, it'll even trigger some socialists, too, you know, because there are a lot of socialists out there who are very much workerists, right? Yeah. They want, you know, something like a federal jobs guarantee because, like Jamie was saying before, they see the proletarianization of everybody as uh, one of the preconditions in order to somehow eliminate proletarianization. Um, so let, can you tease that out a little bit? Well, I mean, I certainly think on that point that one of the, the final frontier of respectability politics that has been so hard to break down is the kind of workerist work ethic, right? You, you can sort of be lots of different variations of things, but as long as you prove that you're a hard worker, it's fine. And they really were the kind of, they, they were they just, I think, sought to really dismantle respectability politics in all aspects, right? They were really sex positive. They fought a number of really restrictive um, rules where you weren't allowed to have a man in the house if you were receiving welfare, right? Then he would be responsible for paying for these midnight raids that they would conduct, this kind of policing of women's sexuality, or they were being forced to be sterilized in order to... um, to receive welfare benefits. So this like real expansive demands for bodily autonomy, for the right to uh, money that they could do with as they chose, right? To not be kind of accountable to how they were spending it or with whom. Um, And I think that that's a really important intervention, right? Even in the days where we've kind of made headway in um, at least feminists have, I think, in, in a kind of variety of like women can dress slutty or they can dress prim or and these are all valid feminisms. Right. Like they were sort of I, I really picture them as like the grandmas of this. Mm. They they ushered in the way. And the thing that we have forgotten about that they really emphasized was this final frontier of like and also fuck work. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I also want to ask you a question that I also asked uh, Titi Bhattacharya when she was on uh, Majority Report. Girl crush forever. Hell yeah. We're definitely going to get her on one of these days. Hillary Um, Clinton is the anti-queen and Titi is the real queen. The real queen. The true queen. She's a literal communist, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So, um, yeah, um, we've seen like... A lot of the social contract has broken down since the 70s, as we've seen this uh, shift towards neoliberalism and austerity. Um, And like a lot of the once robust welfare programs that were still pretty robust in the 70s have gone away as uh, budgets have been cut and wealth has been transferred even further up the ladder to the one uh, percent, I always have to say that in my Bernie voice. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, and like this New Deal social democracy, right? It wasn't ever going to be enough, but it at least acknowledged that the reproductive labor done mainly by women um, had some price tag on it and uh, was to be included in something like the family wage. Uh, whereas right. now. Uh, we're all expected to just like take all of these costs on ourselves. And it's very much individualized as a matter of individual choice. Like, oh, well, if you want to have a child, if you, if you can't afford to care for children, you shouldn't have them uh, without recognizing that, you know, if the working class stopped having kids, 
there would be no workers and the fucking economy would collapse. So can I just jump in and just get real mad for a second? Please. Okay. How pure is your hate? So fucking pure right now. It reminds me of these fucking articles that you read and like, you know, not even like fucking Bloomberg or like Business Insider, but like, you know, the New York Times or like fucking New Republic or whatever, where they like, do you want to have a child? And they like, it's like a budget. They like break down all the costs for you. Like over the course of 18 years, one child will cost you $745,000. Calculate your income and see how many children you can fucking have. How deranged and inhuman and quantitatively fucking distorted society do we have that this is the way that we're making decisions about bringing children into the world and reproducing the next generation of people. It is a fundamentally inhuman inhumane way of understanding the world to try to quantify these fucking things how much is it you know how much is one woman's one year of a woman's domestic labor worth you know uh compared to you know how much we can actually get out of you know tax revenues and this that and the other thing the whole thing is so fucking perverse and what i respect a lot about the people that you're talking about in this movement and a lot of this is new to me is that they saw through this bullshit totally i love the i love it when you said if this system cannot afford us a humane life then fuck the system yeah i mean you know i am extrapolating some they didn't go quite that far the welfare rights movement went that far but but they they did i mean they they brought it to the supreme court they attempted to like figure out a way to read the constitution as enshrining a constitutional right to life uh, that would guarantee all of the necessities of that life right except for unborn children yeah. of course yeah um, but going back to my question, um, did I you, derail it with my anger? Uh, I'm sorry. A little bit, but that's hate. always welcome. Okay, all right. Here at the Antifada, that is in the Antifada mindset. I will stop being so toxic and masculine now. Uh, yes, that's also fine. Um, <laughs> so, given that a lot of this reproductive labor was and is performed in the service of capital, um, and given that uh, that sort of agreement is going away now where we're just expected to pay for it ourselves and the powers that be don't even acknowledge that this stuff benefits capital, right? If you want to get welfare, you have to work. You have to do extra work in exchange for it. Um, like it's, it's really bad in a lot of ways. Clearly people are struggling. People are dying. It fucking sucks. But like, does this create some sort of an opening for a more, an even more radical solution it goes beyond uh, the compromises of the New Deal and the Great Society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. I really think of them as a kind of rupture with the Great Society in that, that they felt those programs were insufficient and sort of would always be and that the, there needed to be a massive overhaul. And I think that that massive overhaul that they envisioned was a lot like a UBI. UBI, UBI, UBI. You just Universal said the magic word. Basic income. Not What's to be confused thing? with a UTI. <laughs> totally <laughs> different. Uh, if we had enough uh, UTIs, uh, everyone could get a little bit more UBI, I suppose. <laughs> oh but uh, sorry, that, I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. Uh, universal basic income is on a lot of lips right now. Interestingly, in this period, mm-hmm. and we might want to compare the sort of pressures of automation, Wilson, you were talking about before, and the sort of precarity and crisis of uh, you know the job market to the 70s to try to maybe think about why in places like Bloomberg, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, they're talking about a universal basic income, why some countries, like I believe it was, was in Norway and Switzerland, have tried pilot programs with a UBI recently. 
Um, the Netherlands had a little pilot program. Finland as well. Um, Switzerland voted on a referendum that failed a couple of years ago. No, it, we don't want free money. <laughs> Take that away from but, us but right it's a, now. It's a hot topic, though, right? It's a hot topic, uh, not just on the left, but also even on the right. There's mm. Silicon Valley, our ruling class nerds we were talking about uh, mm. last episode are talking about UBI as a solution to them automating all of our uh, livelihoods out of existence. So what's up with that? What's up yeah. with the UBI? And maybe that interlocks with another question we have written down on the sheet here, which is, why is this important for radicals today? Well, I think it's back today because partially because despite the really low unemployment rates, like, you know, official unemployment rates, we know that there's a lot of people that go uncounted by that. Wages are still really down and people are really struggling. Like this fantasy of work, work, work as the solution feels very fraudulent to our generation at at the very least, if not to others, right? I mean, we're all working a ton and can't make ends meet. For people working 70 hours a week, you tell them, oh, we're going to get more work for you. You're like, yeah how much more time do i have right this this might be a digression but like it really fucking chaps my ass that at any other point in uh 20th century history probably i would be making a comfortable middle-class living as a writer uh, in the portion of my career that i'm currently in um but i am not and most of the writers i know even the fairly very successful ones do other things on the side whether it's consulting or sex work or like fucking anything so that they can support what they love to do. And like, and that's not just in New York. Like one of the things that we kept hearing about out of those teacher strikes in Oklahoma and West Virginia, right? People with a solid, what used to be middle-class job, driving Uber, working at the grocery store, farming like a a whole range of the second and third jobs that they had to hold in order to be able to afford to be a teacher like so so there's i think there's a kind of legitimacy of work as the means to a good life that is being challenged Mm -hmm. by the difficulties that we are all facing um and there is the you know the technological right there's this massive divide between productivity and income so it's very clear to us now who's gaining all of the benefits of the productivity increases like i was always afraid that i would never become successful uh but i didn't realize that i could become somewhat successful and still be fucking broke you had to clarify your wish to the genie a little better right <laughs> like mm, yeah exactly that's a that's a real legalese that uh got me on that loophole like i figured by the time i was at the point in my career if i ever got there where i was fucking writing for rolling stone that i would not have to worry too much about money like i would have you know not a ton of money probably but uh i don't know like a decent like fifty thousand dollars a year, say, and that's just not the case. A kitchen where I could chop the vegetables uh, while you saute them, uh, both at the same time, where Ugh. we weren't bumping butts the entire time. Ugh, from your mouth to God's ears, babe. One difference too is that uh, is the transnational uh, nature of uh, capital and capitalist production nowadays. 
So for all the talk of like this resurgent social democracy uh, and the UBI, things are vastly different in terms of where things are made, uh, where the profits are going, how quickly capital can move from one place to another, and also the relative, I wouldn't even say capabilities, but prerogatives of the individual nation state, you know, in order to kind of rein in capital or, or keep capital uh, inside, which adds a, a very very different sort of dimension to this UBI and this automation question, right? Because no longer can you kind of wall off your uh, Heronvoke, uh, you know, social democratic United States from like these outside forces, right? A UBI on a, you know, nationwide scale almost seems like it's insufficient at this point in time if, you know, things are being produced in Malaysia and China and then being sent to the U.S. and people are working shitty service jobs here. I think you get where I'm going with that, right? Yeah. Yeah, the question of immigration has always been one that kind of plagues folks who are into UBI, right? What is the community that you're talking about and and how will you sort of police outsiders, right? If it's a national program, how strict will your borders have to be? Or how long will have people have to be in the country before you allow them to have this benefit as well? I mean, I think that to me is probably one of the thornier technical questions. But I still think that in the way that it allows us to really think about a life where income and labor are decoupled and labor is decommodified, that it's one of the most compelling solutions. And, and to me, it's certainly... And I think that the women that I study have a lot to say on this, right, that that there are ways that full employment programs are really unappealing, especially because I think that we can fairly safely assume that one can't just create awesome jobs out of thin air and that folks who are really kind of fetishized full employment programs don't take into account the history of, you know, attempts at government as last uh, resort employment like in the U.S., uh, especially during the New Deal, you know, how just how difficult it was to implement any of those public works programs and how quickly they had to be rescinded, really, like before the government, before the economy had even fully recovered, because the business communities were just losing their minds mm -hmm. over the government providing yep. jobs for people at decent wages. This gets to, I think, the heart of what is radical about both UBI and a federal jobs guarantee. Uh, and part of why I'm relatively agnostic on them is that it would drive the fucking capitalist crazy. With a UBI, what it essentially does is take away what you, babe, said before about the threat of, you know, the implicit threat of not going out to work is you starve to death or you're homeless. Mm -hmm. So UBI takes that power implicit in the capitalist social relation and eliminates it. Right. It says that you're going to presumably get enough basic income that you don't have to go work for any job at any wage. Right. There's going to be a floor that you can't fall under. And the federal jobs guarantee, as Wilson pointed out in the New Deal, drives capitalists crazy because all of a sudden now, you know, the slack, as they call it, in the labor market is completely gone, which gives workers tons more freedom to be militant and radical and demanding, you know, not just with wages, but on the shop floor, how things are run, this, that, and the other thing. So UBI and uh, a federal jobs guarantee both do these things, which is that it swings, it would could swing, if done correctly, radically the power that labor has, labor, not even in an organized sense, but wage labor is, you know, to make demands and to actually win them because with zero unemployment or zero, uh, threat of starving to death 
Uh, you don't have to take a job at $9 an hour, you know, doing backbreaking, horrible work for some asshole boss. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea behind it is it's sort of analogous to the public option, but with jobs instead of healthcare. So like, um, and, and they would all be at uh, $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, and I think that's the federal jobs guarantee plan that Bernie Sanders has laid out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so like it creates a floor that people can't fall below and it makes people less afraid of losing their jobs in a labor action or whatever. So they could just go out and find a decent government job that pays 15 bucks an hour. Um, and also I think a lot of these jobs, at least as folks like Derek Hamilton have uh, described it, would be uh, in service of fulfilling and returning these uh, basic social services to people or in some cases, giving it to them for the first time, like healthcare. Um, if we were to have a national health service, that would be an enormous employer, um, as well as uh, socialized care work for children or the elderly, as well as rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. So I think it's um, it's like a short-term solution, probably. Yep. But I I do I get where you're coming from, and I think a lot of people would criticize it as a kind of work fair, albeit much better than the kind that we had, say, under Clinton in the 90s. But, um, yeah, I guess Sean wants to say something now. No, no, I'd, I'd throw it to Wilson on that because she threw out a good point, right, which is that, you know, you were saying, oh, instead of, like, you know, wiping my own grandfather's ass at home, we're now going to go out, you're going to give me a, a certain amount of money to live off of, but I'm going to go do it for a government job, you know, socially, yeah. workfare, um, doing the same thing but in a more alienated way. So, in a sense... The federal job guarantee doesn't even really overcome that fundamental alienation issue. Yeah, I, I don't I don't personally think that it does. Um, it's better than working at Walmart, though, right? Sure, but yeah. being in charge of capitalism is like, better than feudalism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know the the famous uh, Joan Robinson quote: "The only thing worse than not being exploited is being exploited." Or Vice versa. Now I've I made it. The only, you have the, indeed said that on the, the show the before. You are of the antifada uh, Being exploited is not being exploited. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an unemployment argument. Yeah, yeah that's, the, that's fair. Um, the, but um, the, the point that I wanted to make, too, is that, you know, Silicon Valley and others have floated this UBI thing. And now some liberal Democrats for, you know, good faith or just opportunistic reasons are talking about full employment again, which we haven't done since the 1970s, even rhetorically, right? Um, the big question is, you know, who's the constituency for this? You know, who out there with the, in Trump's America, you know, are going to want to have this massive government intervention, no matter what the program might be, right? They hate you know, minorities, they hate immigrants, right? They're very protective of their personal property. You know, they have guns and they are, you know, teacots and fucking angry white men, right? There's a really great article and it's, uh, it's actually an opinion piece from uh, July 19th called uh, Liberal Blind Spots. It could just end with that. Every New York Times op-ed could just be liberal blind spots. But no, this one's really good. Liberal... That's the secret title. That's <laughs> by, a real this, title. This is by Sarah Schmarsh. Liberal blind spots. That's not spots. a real name. No, it's a real... Sarah Schmarsh. 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 <laughs> yeah, my name is Sarah Schmarsh. <laughs> hey, look, she's got good info sector, right? <laughs> Although nobody could make up that name. All right, so it's called Liberal Blind Spots Are Hiding the Truth About Scare Quote Trump Country. So it says, for one thing, it's not Trump country. 
most struggling whites I know here live a life of quiet desperation, mad at their white bosses, not resentful towards their coworkers or neighbors of color. So similar to what is happening in this history that you're describing to us, right? This whole article, and people should read it because it's good and it's amazing and made it into the Times, shows that this radical or potentially militant discontent with work and not just the material gains that you get from your wage labor in your shitty job or even decent job, but the dignity, right? And the, um, you know, the, the domination that you face every day and the inability to piss when you want to piss, you know, you have to show up at a certain time every day. Once you're in there, your free speech rights go away. It's this private tyranny, right? It's in this article, in this op-ed, they're talking about this happening in Trump country. So a lot of these people who made a very poor choice in pulling the lever for our orange man, um, they could potentially be persuaded towards very progressive or potentially like non-reformist reform programs because if you look at it, more people feel in their day-to-day the uh, exploitation and domination of the bosses than they do the government. But there is no political or even media force out there that's pushing that narrative and giving voice to these people who feel this discontent. I mean, I just saw... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez making just that point on the news the other day when she had a joint, I think she had some sort of joint appearance with Bernie Sanders and you know, the the quote unquote liberal media is very quick to wave away victories like hers by saying, Oh, well what works in the Bronx Mm. would never play in middle America. What middle America needs um, and what Democrats need to win elections in middle America is to move to the center, a.k.a. to the right, and become moderates. And she said, that's just not fucking true. She has strong class politics that do not conflict in any way with her conception of, quote, identity politics. It's all tied together. And she said, wherever there are working class people, these politics are going to succeed. What they are saying is bullshit. And I thought that was really inspiring. I I hope that that's correct. And I think that there is no political party in the United States that has um, stood on that platform in a mass way. Um, I don't think in U.S. history, maybe the Socialist Party back in the early 20th century or the American Labor Party uh, back in the 1940s. But I think that what you talk about with AOC and Bernie Sanders, you know, as much as their vision and their critique we might find insufficient, it is opening the doors to these ideas like UBI, federal jobs guarantee, right? We do have an opening right now on the left. And, you know, like those women did back in the 60s and 70s, that door has been slightly cracked open, so maybe we can kick it the fuck open, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, like, that jump from uh, hating your boss to really critiquing capitalism is, you know, it's a big, it's a big jump. And that takes for lack of a better word consciousness raising mobilizing right i mean in the same way that women have sort of felt isolated in marriages and hated their husbands but not been able to make the leap to critiquing patriarchy that uh it requires a kind of organized ideological cohesive thing other than otherwise we can sort of stay stuck in like 
TGI Fridays, right? Sure. Like, yeah. yeah, everybody loves Friday, but no one can think about what if every day was Saturday. Fuck yeah. yeah. You don't or, hate Mondays. You hate <laughs> capitalism. Or alternate. And I'm thinking now about what you just said, like the, this disgruntled, uh, you know, attitude towards the boss uh, started to express itself in the 1980s with going postal, mm-hmm. you know, and shooting up your fucking job place and like mm-hmm. shooting your boss. I mean, that's not cool. We had a guy in my union last year who got laid off by a foreman and uh, he went home and he got a uh, handgun and he went to the job site, uh, went up to the 13th floor where they were pouring concrete. And uh, this guy shot his foreman in the face and then killed himself, Jesus, which Jesus. does show that this guy was somewhat disgruntled towards his work situation. But that is not, let's say, a very effective way of moving yeah. things forward in a uh, progressive direction. Well, so I agree that... with you. You're right. The, instinctually, it's there. But obviously, this anger needs to be focused at who is really benefiting uh, from this and uh, who really ultimately is to blame and who is our class enemy, which of course is the capitalist class and their lackeys, the running dogs. Yeah, it goes back to our friend Jared's story that he wrote for Vice, right? I punched my boss in the face, which is a great headline. It was very satisfying for him to punch his boss in the face, um, who's also your boss, not Every, coincidentally. Everybody out there, just close your eyes for five seconds and just imagine punching your boss in the face. Okay, Jamie, go. <laughs> I don't want to punch my boss in the face. No, not you. I meant our listeners. Hello? You love Sam Cedar. I like, do. I am a you real... punch me in the face. Do you see? I have a real Sam Loyal list. His bosses go. He's not bad. Not bad he's at all. He's like your dad and your boss. So um, he's got big dad energy. Anyway. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, uh, I'm sure as satisfying as it was for our friend Jared to punch his boss in the face, he ultimately recognized that that was something he did by himself. And it didn't really get him anything in the long term. So really, he was just punching himself. Um, And we only get what we want. uh, And we only go to a productive place in the long term when we act collectively. And I think that is a big way that people get class consciousness is when they act collectively as a group. Like I saw... um, some teachers speak at the socialism conference in Chicago recently. And there was one lady, I think she was from West Virginia, actually. Uh, I got to fact check that after the show, but she said, you know, I had a moment where I was in the kitchen with my husband and I said, you know, our labor belongs to us. And she never thought of it that way, but she was, but, but they were both like, yeah, it does belong to us. And like from that moment forward, they were just and, and they 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 gained this consciousness in the course of just like organizing in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Like that's all that they could do. And from that moment forward, they were just so so conscious, so fierce mm-hmm. in fighting collectively for their rights. And I don't know, I, I think leftists of all stripes have found those struggles really inspiring and would like to see more of the same. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why it annoys me so much that my union, the PSC, is just such a sort of wet blanket on any kind of militancy, because I think it's precisely through militancy that we gain more militancy, right? It's not by sort of waiting for someone to tell us what to do that we build a strong and powerful union. And, yeah, totally. and these women, the, you know, the, the NWRO women, they were totally radicalized through the struggle right it wasn't necessarily that they set out to uh become these political actors but that they realized that was their power 
Now, um, I want to go back to um, something we talked about a w- way back uh, when we talked about struggles that aren't happening necessarily at the point of production, but organizing that's happening outside of that and the potentials of that. Um, you know, you would get the sense from this talk that, you know, people only do things out of their own material self-interest or that, um, you know, it takes a leap of consciousness to, uh, you know, get beyond that. Um, there's the most amazing and probably most inspiring uh, strike story, I think, in U.S. labor history is one that I think shows the power of having not just organizations like unions, militant unions within the workplace, but also having the kind of organizing you, you were talking about with these welfare rights uh, militants in the 70s. Um, in the height of um, the uh, labor fight back in, the, in 1934, um, this is when the, you know, there were massive strikes, wildcat strikes, sit down strikes, recognition strikes. This is basically this, the hottest year in American labor history. We had three general strikes in one year and, uh, we've only had one since then in 1948, but, uh, there was a plan called auto light. It was in Toledo, Ohio. And, um, this is the great depression and the folks there had had a union as they were building, you know, machine parts. And uh, basically, the company decided that they wanted to get rid of the union, so they locked the workers out. Now, what would happen today if you locked the workers out and said, you know, you're going to be decertified, we're going to get replacement workers, is that you'd find, you know, thousands and thousands of people who would line up for, you know, even a decent non-union job in that factory. But what had happened in the level of militancy and the level of organization and the level of class consciousness, let's call it, let's call it in uh, Toledo, Ohio in 1934, led a bunch of commies, and you know we jokingly talk shit on trots, but they were trotsiest. They had formed, the year before, an unemployed workers' union. Now imagine that, right? That's like a, work, you know, like a welfare rights organization. Right? How do you have a union of people who are unemployed? Well, basically, they got all the unemployed in Toledo together, and they said, you know what? You're workers, too. You might be out of the workplace right now. You might not be selling your labor at this moment. You may be the reserve army of labor, as Marx called it. But here's a union card, right? And pay your dues someday when you get a job. Mm. So when the bosses, right, they had, uh, they were basically, uh, they opened the gates. The uh, the picketers were outside, and uh, you know they basically thought that their strike was going to fall apart because all these replacement workers were going to come in. They saw this giant line of, of men coming up to the gates. They're like, up oh, here come the scabs, here come the replacement workers. And as this group of striking workers and uh, these new workers arrived to each other, all of the unemployed workers' union members uh, took out their union cards and raised them in the air, and then the strikers realized what happened and they took their union cards out and waved them in the air and the unemployed workers joined the picket lines and shut the factory down until the management caved. Oh, hell yeah. So that goes to show that this is not, you know, some wild-eyed fantasy shit. You know, when you have organizing outside of the point of production, you can make real wins when it comes to actual, you know, labor struggles that shut shit down. And ultimately, the Autolite strike in Toledo was won. In 1934, because they organized everybody so that nobody would fucking scab. Mazel tov. Yeah, and uh, another point I wanted to make about quote-unquote red states that they uh, really touched upon at the socialism conference, at the teachers' uh, plenary talk, is that, uh, you know, quote-unquote coastal elites want to paint all of these folks with the same brush and say this is Trump country, but uh, I think in West Virginia, only something like 27% of the population actually voted for Trump. So uh, that kind of puts the lie to uh, 
when folks like Joanne Reed say, oh, you teachers, you hate austerity. Why did you vote for Trump? Why didn't you vote for Hillary? Like, shut the fuck up. So we want to talk about UBI for a minute, right? We've seen people on the left and on the right making arguments in favor of it. And it always makes me a little nervous when I see some like technocratic libertarians advocating for a specific policy. So um, what are some of the left critiques of UBI? Um, how, what are the different ways it could be carried out? And um, this might be a question, like a couple questions from now, but like, how do you see UBI fitting into sort of a long-term socialist horizon? Because mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have portrayed it as at least potentially a kind of non-reformist reform that eventually brings us for closer to socialism. Yeah. Well, I think certainly one of the leftist critiques is that it's been popular on the right and from technocrats and from, uh, you know, Barack Obama last week mentioned that maybe a UBI would be necessary in his homage to Nelson Mandela. Alarm bells start going off. Right. Hillary Clinton in her, oh. like, What Went Wrong book or oh. whatever. What Se happened? Se I, I believe the title was How You All Failed Me. <laughs> <laughs> Did she really fucking say something about UBI Yeah, in that I think book? she said, wow. like, I wanted to I wanted to go for it, but I wasn't sure it was the right time or something. Jesus like, she was like, it, I would be on board with that. That's... To, I mean, she said that about everything, but right. the fact that she felt compelled to say it about UBI in the book does say something right yeah i mean it's but but ubi has always been something that had supporters from the right and from the left right it's constantly been milton friedman was a big proponent in the you know in the nixon nixon put forward this plan right in in 1971 the family assistant plan i'm assuming that the right you know, like Milton Friedman and uh, Richard Nixon wanted it for different reasons than the left. My understanding is that Milton Friedman wanted um, basically for it to uh, replace all of the other uh, welfare, Social Security, Medicaid type programs that exist and have it just be sort of like a the distributional uh, uh, equivalent of like a flat tax. Right. right. Like, a, you know, you get this check and then it's the Hunger Games right. everywhere else. Um <laughs> You know, I mean, I think that with policy, it's always, always, always a truism that the devils are in the details right. and what the amount is set at. Right? Nixon wanted it set at um, 16 or $1,700 a year. The NWRO wanted it set at their initial demand was 5500 And in a couple of years, it went up to 7500 which would be the equivalent of around $32,000 a year in you know, current dollars. So the amount of money certainly would make a big difference. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways that, you know, what are we willing to trade in order to get it is a big question, right? Like, will we give up universal health care and just buy everything on the market? I think all of these things depend on the strength of the social forces at a time in which we're mobilizing for it. And and, uh, you know, I'm against concessionary bargaining of all kinds. I don't think we give up anything. I think we just want more. Can you tell my union delegates that? Yeah, tell mm. mine too, please. <laughs> Jesus. And the thing that uh, freaks me out about it, uh, especially when you hear libertarians like Elon Musk talking about it. Shout out to my space baby, Lonnie. This song's for you. See you on a space flight. <laughs> but um, like the idea, because they know 
where this is going. They want to automate all the jobs that they can. And after they do that, um, they want us hoi poi to have just enough so that we can live in poverty and not cut their heads off. Yeah. And I fucking chafe against that. Sorry. Part of me feels like they they're pretty bright people and they see trends. I mean, they're obviously fucking socially uh, backwards and nerdy um, psycho sociopaths who are happy to exploit people and uh, destroy the planet uh, uh, while they do some woo meditation retreat in the fucking uh, ski ski slopes of uh, Utah. But like part of me feels like they actually do realize the implications of the technologies and the automation uh, that they are in the process of trying to create right now. And so perhaps like the fact that they're into it shows that maybe there is something to this, like, you know, automation through capitalist development has always led to um, increased jobs in other sectors. But maybe the capitalist class or sectors of it, the more forward thinking sectors are starting to be like, yeah, well, maybe if we automate all the clerical work, all the service industry work, all the trucking, you know, all of like the, the cars and everything like that. Even the like mundane legal work, right? Yes. That lawyers yeah. used to do. That and, is, and, and even yeah. teaching now. You've got yeah. Jamie's, you were at the at that horrible Aussie fest and the woman was talking about what entrepreneurial education oh and God. like one teacher teaching like 5,000 kids. So it there go so all dark. your teachers, like millions of teachers in the United States automated out of existence. But it's every teacher's dream to reach thousands yeah, right. of students all over the world via the magic of the web cam technology and not even have to talk to the parents like that is actually advertised <laughs> as a benefit on the vip kid website oh. and uh the starting salary i looked it up on the website is like 14 dollars an hour plus incentives oh dude and this is parenthetical but part of the reason why those teachers who struck in all those states and especially west virginia were powerful is because teachers and parents have a relationship Right. And that's part of like being in this mm -hmm. care educational type work. And if they can destroy that connection and along with collective bargaining and along with like, you know, that school as an actual physical place, then all the fucking better. But then maybe yep. what they're worried about is, well, yeah, like you said, you know, eventually they're going to come and they're going to fucking guillotine it. Madam Guillotine's always in the fucking mm -hmm. back of their minds or that's, should be. It should be. That's Probably why they want to dissolve the social bonds. That's right. I mean, I think that. I think that we could think about a lot of the like really big benefits that a UBI would have that maybe could like get us closer to socialism. And one is like one of my favorite descriptions of a UBI is as an unlimited strike fund. Mm. Hell yeah. Right? I've like, heard that before. Yeah, yeah. How do we, how do we build power? It's by giving people the ability to walk away and to not be terrified by what's going to happen when they walk away. That's, you know, that's, even more than the Taylor law, that's the reason that every adjunct I speak to at CUNY says is, you know, I can't afford to lose my job. I can't afford to, I couldn't even possibly think about going on strike. Like the kind of power that we could imagine the working class having when it is no longer afraid to go on strike is fairly monumental and I think shouldn't be discounted. Um, you know, you talk about this some with a jobs guarantee, but I work for a you know, a state institution now and I'm not allowed to strike. So I'm not like very sure that having a jobs guarantee via the federal government would like enshrine my right to strike. And well, I mean, you point to the flip side of a lot of this conversation, too, is like the, these UBI proposals are being floated around. But at the same time, you know, 80 years of labor law 
that was actually able to tame the militancy of like that auto light strike in 1934, the general strike in San Francisco, the general strike in Minneapolis, you know, all this happening in, you know, the, this real high tide of workers militancy, you know, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act of 1934, or is it 35? One of them. Uh, 35. 35. It institutes Section 7A. Thank you. God, stop woman splaining. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I love that. You're, you're like, uh, I'm getting bored. I think up, he's, man, I know. think he's blushing. Yes, I am. <laughs> I, I love women who explain uh, obscure uh, legal uh, labor uh, acts. That's to a me. niche. Yeah, it's Same. a real niche. It's, uh, it's hard on Tinder to find that. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, no, like uh, in, in a lot of ways, and I think this is a very common left critique. The, uh, um the uneasy truce between capital and labor that happened coming out of that uh, period um, not only created, quote unquote, the great you know middle class of the golden age of capitalism from the 40s to the um, 70s, uh, but also constrained labor's ability to actually act as a militant shop floor grassroots force uh, that could push their demands um, forward. So while you have this conception of the UBI coming, they're also eliminating labor law so that, you know, if you want to throw those laws out the window, that's fine. But maybe we're going to start acting like it's 1934 again. Yeah, I'm into that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Well, I think that also one of the things that I find really compelling about a UBI that maybe I don't feel enough leftists talk about are the kinds of environmental benefits that we could imagine. You know, New Zealand is... The company in New Zealand is piloting a four-day week, um, and they've seen, like, their electricity output plummet by 20%, the amount of pollution from commuting, even just, you know, when we talk about the the coal miners and the kind of, like, wanting them to be able to have good lives, and that often having been tied to this horrifically polluting industry— that I think that UBI is is a really important intervention into that. Like we have enough shit. We don't have to just produce shit so that people have jobs. We could also have more time to be able to do stuff in maybe slower ways that requires less like spending money in order to get something really quickly because we're running between our five fucking jobs and need to like buy all this plastic shit to you know, feed ourselves in between those jobs. Yeah. It's like a virtuous cycle, virtuous, virtuous cycle. Because like, as you said, the more we're like working 70 hours a week and jumping from job to job, the less time, like we have to cook our own food, mm-hmm. like I clean our own houses. So that then becomes even more commodified because you got to stop at like, you know, uh, McDonald's or something to pick up a burger, uh, because you're jumping from job to job to job and you don't have the time to do these things. Yeah. Not to mention something like air travel, like, uh, Sean and I talk quite a lot about how we're going to do things after the rev. It's like yeah, one it's of our, our favorite topics. It's kind of pillow talk, actually. That's cute. One That's of our really favorite cute. topics to talk about, you know, after how we're going to drown both the cats in a pillowcase. Mm, but, yeah, that's um, also sexy. <laughs> uh, ha- haven't done it yet. That would not fly in my house. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you're oh, not part of our poly triad having, yet. What's the point of having pets if you yeah. can't talk shit about them right in front of their faces? <laughs> and you what's know the, you like to do that. And what's the point of having a marriage if you can't uh, just in post-coital bliss lay down on the mattress <laughs> and imagine fully automated luxury gay space communism? With no cats. <laughs> just kidding. With some cats. all the cats. Abolish not cats. all cats. Uh, <laughs> no. So like... One of the things we like to talk about is how we're going to do things after the rev. And something like air travel could be 
severely limited, right? Because why do people have to fly everywhere in planes? Because they have to get back to their fucking jobs. You know what is also a good way to travel? A boat. A sailboat that a boat. has zero carbon emissions. And I would I would really enjoy that just to yeah. take a maybe I'll take a boat next time we go to Europe, you know? Yeah. Well, if again, I if mean, we not, were not... not now, I have to go to work. No, but no, like, me too. <laughs> maybe I'll take the boat, you know, after uh, after communism when we go to Europe. Well, this brings us back, I think, to like the fundamental point. And I think a major part of my politics and Jamie's politics, and it sounds like Wilson, your politics, too, is that it's not because we come from a privileged position because none of us are fucking rich. And it's not because we have some sort of infantile fantasies about, oh, you know, wouldn't it be so nice if I could just lay on the beach all the time like a fucking schlub? It's because like real in real material terms, right? The productivity right now of capital, the ability for um, the, the ability to create those use values, those tangible objects that help to make our lives, you know, meaningful but uh also easy like dishwashers and things of this sort um capitalism has the tendency you know towards automation it has the tendency towards making these things with less and less inputs of not just labor but also machinery right so the fundamental communist horizon is that if we were to take these things out of the profit system if you were take to take the production of goods uh and services out of the profit system that you could literally have all not just first world but all the 8 billion people or whatever it is on earth radically reduce the amount of time that they spend you know working for somebody else for a wage and create the sort of humane system that is based not on exchange of goods but actually on the useful things that can be created and automating those things to the fullest so that we progressively lessen and lessen and lessen the amount of time that we have to go through doing drudgery and, uh, you know, basically wasting our lives with dead time uh, as we do under capitalism for 40, 60, 80, 90 hours a week. That's my vision, right, is that we have the material means right now to overcome work, overcome wage labor. And it's merely the mode of production and the social relations that we have right now under capitalism that are stopping that from happening. Yeah, I mean, production for for production's sake is just fucking stupid. Like you were talking about earlier with the environment. Um, I know we got a little bit into the weeds on the last episode when I brought up a point that someone made at the Socialism Conference, which is uh, he cited a study saying that uh, if we were to have a Green New Deal, uh, the amount of economic activity that would be generated by that under capitalism would basically cancel out any environmental benefit that we would get from it and that kind of tracks with what you're just saying and i feel like a lot of people don't always make the connection between this kind of economic activity production for production's sake and the ways in which the environment gets destroyed socialists haven't been forced to reckon with this i think so intensely as we are in this generation it's always been a, a kind of like the immediate concern is making sure that we can produce enough at least you know in russia or soviet union or figuring out how to get everyone jobs but those can't be our main concerns anymore right we we are like so clearly aware of the catastrophic wreckage that climate change is causing around us i mean even even from our little privileged bubble in brooklyn 
but I thought we were going to solve it through entrepreneurship and technological innovation. Is that not true? Did Ozzy Fest lie to me? <laughs> it was all lies. You spent $112 for a day of lies. Oh my God, you had to pay for that? Plus the $5 for the acid or whatever. It oh yeah. I mean, I got paid to write the article, but um, um, are there any more critiques you want to make of UBI? Yeah. I mean, I just don't beat a dead horse. Like I one of the critiques that folks raise, especially feminists, about UBI is that it would just further entrench the gendered division of labor so uh, that better policies that they would hope for would be like better childcare or better maternity leave or those kinds of things. And I think that we can ask for those and ask for UBI as well. You know, their fear is that women will just be stuck doing the things that they have always been stuck doing because it will sort of make more financial sense. And I think this is really one of the examples where the kinds of problems that people run into and having these high level theoretical arguments without looking at the history of how people have approached this or, you know, we haven't even talked about the many experiments that have been conducted on UBI and the kinds of really remarkable feminist outcomes that those showed. So like um, in in Manitoba in the 70s, they conducted a big UBI uh, experiment that a friend, uh, David Kalinske, has written about extensively. And one of the big findings from that was that rates of domestic violence plummeted and divorce rates increased. Awesome. Right? Because women had the means to leave abusive marriages. I mean, we don't know exactly what the causal mechanisms are, but like we can certainly assume that women had the means to leave some abusive marriages. Maybe some of the stress factors causing domestic abuse were mitigated by people not having the terror of financial instability hanging over them. Which is almost not a... You can't do a direct, like, correlation between that and like you were saying before the like uh, unlimited strike fund but if you look at the domestic sphere of like the home as a, a place of production then like yeah it's the same thing right it's like a strike fund for women who don't want to deal with abuse anymore yeah who don't want to deal with shitty partners anymore yeah it who goes can back walk away to exactly what i was saying about me too right and the sort of political limits of the way it is now we like to do a segment at the end of the antifada called getting personal and personal. it kind of fell off for the past few weeks. Yeah, we, we didn't were, have very personable people on. We were all no, just say kidding, that. Nero. We love you. <laughs> and Alex. That's Alex. not nice. He's you're the cry you're now. the best uh, tech garden gnome that uh, the world's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we we were all just like very excited to talk about the things we were talking about, and we forgot to talk about ourselves and each other. And also really tired after hours. Of that is true. That is true. Um, not like now. I'm not tired at all. Right now, I'm like totally <laughs> fucking awake. You I only did not twenty hours on that Rolling Stones article. I didn't stay last, up uh... late listening to Chapo to see if they said my name. That's <laughs> not a thing that I would ever do. No, no. Uh, so that didn't happen. So anyway, um, we have a segment we like to call "Getting Personal." And I would like to kick it off for a question with a question for you, Wilson. Yeah. And that is, <laughs> Wilson, how many Bernie bro boyfriends do you now have as a result of rejecting Hillary Clinton and stabbing your fellow women in the back? This is a special place in hell. Oh, my God. And in the bed. That was, that was the point that Gloria Steinem made, right? Mm. I think that we yeah. wait. We just have to come full circle and take a moment. Gloria Steinem and her CIA apologist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Hey, the CIA is woke now. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> is the most vile, vile, vile form of bourgeois feminism. Seriously. 
And the fact that people worship her because she's pretty is so abhorrent. And you are a terrible, terrible feminist if you like Gloria Steinem because she's pretty and you look past her CIA apology bullshit. That ass. I as, mean, as one of my favorite historical figures once said, four walls is three too many for Gloria Steinem. Oh, hey, I don't like Gloria Steinem because she's pretty. Wait, who I that? like her because she's Stalin, a bougie ass piece of shit like me. All right. Get it right. <laughs> that was Tanky Lena Dunham right there. That's Jamie, a character Jamie is working on. Tanky Lena Dunham. <laughs> I'm, I'm oh still God. working out the kinks. That has a very niche audience. <laughs> yeah, <it does. laughs> People who subscribe yeah. to Lenny uh, Letter and uh, also, I don't know, like uphold the immortal science of Mao Zedong thought. I don't know. There's like maybe 12 people in new york city right now <laughs> that's the core audience we're looking for if we can get 12 people to listen a thousand times to every episode we'll be doing great i asked our guest question <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry yes i asked liza the same question so um you got a pretty Ooh, high bar to yeah. me oh man you, you versus have, liza featherstone you've been asking me the same questions as my all-time greatest hits uh of marxist feminism love liza liza's good people uh, we should all have dinner sometime again soon. I know that. Uh, well, we yeah, ne- let's do that. all all of us never had dinner together, but I know you've had uh, Doug and Liza's excellent. You've had dinner with them, have we, and we've so. had dinner with them. We should, we should all, all have dinner. Let's have dinner. Let's have dinner. They're in. Uh, they're out of town. I think uh, for the rest of the summer, but we'll make it happen. They'll be cool. back. They'll be back. Very important question. How many Bernie Bro boyfriends did I score from stabbing your you heard me in the back <laughs> by undermining the uh, Afghan garbed goddess of feminism? Oh, man, that was Mother a dark Mallory. time. Was anyone getting laid then? It was just <laughs> so traumatizing. <sighs> Not even Trump According to uh, Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright, we were. I think I actually was sleeping with the one black Trump supporter in Brooklyn <laughs> oh at that time. God. So it was you a found very, that very, <laughs> very confusing moment in my life. Wait, isn't that actually a plot out of Girls from it Lena is. Dunham? Was it? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen uh, that. See? It's all coming Maybe together Maybe it does now. reflect our reality. She, yeah. You know, yeah. she has been stealing a lot of plot lines in my life having <laughs> grown up in new york and tribeca with like an already mom yeah <laughs> i mean same the narcissism of small differences is definitely an accusation that's been leveled at me before um due to my dislike for lena dunham but i don't even hate the show girls like i think it's pretty good actually i just don't like it when she tries to run her mouth off about political things that she has no fucking clue about like sex work is it fair to say wilson that like you're your life story is would be like Lena Dunham, like if you had a soul, if she had a soul, I mean, like, uh, like you're like Marxist Lena Dunham. Yeah. And with less terrible tattoos. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think um, the agent for uh, fuck, what's her name? She's a really good writer. Uh, Gloria Steinem. Uh, yeah. The agent for this really good writer that I follow on Twitter, whose name I can't remember. Like Heidi Matthews. People, she's like, uh, <laughs> definitely not her. She's like <laughs> Lena Dunham without the money. You? No, this, uh, this oh, writer, the writer whose name escapes me. I'll probably cut this part out because uh, I can't remember. And you and, keep it uh, in. Hang her by her she's own really, She's really good, though. Um, and she kind of, she kind of is. Um, but no. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, Wilson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Back to the question. Stop stalling. Yeah, so you're... you're Stop stalling. Tanky Lena needs to know. You were banging out a uh, black Trump supporter during uh, the election season, which was very, very 
woke of you. And I can't believe different. I just confessed this on air. You're I've to. told this very is... few people this oh, was wow. really hot scoops. Truly a uh, spicy take. Top secret. Was the sex worth it? Is the question. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only thing that was worth it. Fair. Oh, sidebar. You know what Palachi stole from my life? Uh, Who, Wilson? No, but maybe. I hope not. Um, <laughs> don't do this. When uh, she's like trying to break up with Adam, spoiler alert, and he just starts jerking off. And he's like, oh, just stay here and I'm going to jerk off in front of you. And she's like, uh, she just kind of stands there until he comes and it's really gross and wait, weird and kind of violent. Wait, so Louis C.K. was dating Lena Dunham at the time? <laughs> or Jamie? Um, unfortunately. <laughs> wait, did you date Louis C.K.? <laughs> What the fuck is happening? Unfortunately, there's more than one guy who does that. Did this um, just become the woke Howard Stern show? I think yeah. Be, yeah. <laughs> you know what? That might not be a bad uh, mark to hit. We're already what the Brunigs would sound like on uppers and with more of an edge, <laughs> according to what? one of our nice, kind reviewers. See, if this is if this was like woke Howard Stern, like it would be me on the Sibian writing the Sibian, <laughs> and uh, like you listening to my orgasms and like laughing at me while I did it. <laughs> I can't tell right, it's more disturbing. Cash, babe. <laughs> oh no. We're working Wait, on it. Jamie is walking towards the cabinet. What's she pulling out? <laughs> you think oh. there's not a Sibian in this office? <laughs> Sam used to Sam. do uh the the real radio. I assume every uh Every radio DJ has a Sibian <laughs> hanging around somewhere. Every yeah. radio DJ from the 90s. When they initiate you into the uh, Air America Club, they give you a uh, complimentary Sibian uh, mm. to ride. It's a fair trade, Sibian. <laughs> for a, li- a liberal, liberal crowd, Explo- liberal audience. Exploitation-free. It was uh, crafted by uh, Guatemalan artisans mm-hmm. out of only mm. the finest fair trade materials. Indeed. Imagine like a Sibian made of wood. I think Ooh, that's just called... That sounds splintery. Yeah, well, we'll work on that concept. I mean, Antifada has to get some branded material, like some merch eventually. Maybe we'll make like a uh, woke fair trade... Saddles. Uh, yeah, that that says Antifada on it, and it's like for insertion into orifices, but not women's, only men's. That's because not what that's a Sibian only does. I thought a Sibian... Isn't it a dildo that also like vibrates? Oh my God, you're so innocent. <sighs> I, do you have Maybe. a Sibian? Is there a Sibian in our house? Whoa! <laughs> pregnant pause. <laughs> um, I know. I'm so really glad expensive. I'm privy to this moment. <laughs> they look like a little too intense for me. Like if I don't like the Hitachi Magic Wand, I probably wouldn't like the Sibian either. Oops, TMI. Um, yeah, no. Maybe the branded Sibian will be like when we hit a thousand patrons or something. Oh shit! That's It'll a great be our, idea. Uh, Patreon's special reward? reward for our Antifa superstars. Wait, but how much money would that cost to send a branded Sibian, like handcrafted by a Guatemalan uh, campesino? I think you've got a research I don't know, project. We, might, oh, we yeah. might need to add a few more tiers. <laughs> the one thousand dollars, the Sibian tier, one thousand dollars. <laughs> but anyway, uh, back to our guest and getting personal with our guest. Um, See, I think she's done with us being personal, what? but uh, <laughs> we could try. Uh, well, we're not done. So we're going to keep going. Um, it's very warm in here. She's got a, oh, is, did it just get warm in did here? Did it just get warm? No, it's been warm. <laughs> uh, the question of dating while not just a feminist, not just a Marxist, but a fucking Marxist feminist. Um, what and labor organizer. Is, and labor organizer. What, uh, what has your experience of that been? Uh, pretty good or? Um, Scale of one to ten. Really brings the Trump boys to the yard. It's a fucking disaster. Uh-oh. 
That's all I'm got. listening. <laughs> um, you don't have to say anything here that you wouldn't say to your psychotherapist or your sister. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I don't have a, ther- uh, a sister. I have many therapists. Thankfully, I have <laughs> um, uh, Dating being a Marxist feminist. Um, I don't know. Where does one even start? It's uh, complicated. You start with a peck on the cheek. <laughs> you start by going on Tinder, so they tell me. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's hard to figure out... Um, Men are just uh, tough creatures. I, um, holy shit, I don't know how to say anything funny. It's all just really depressing. I get no, it. That's fine. You don't even have to go there. Sometimes depressing things are funny. Uh, at least that's how I deal with them in my life when they happen to me. Um, well, you said that you had some ideas on, uh, or some, or some, <laughs> some pearls totally of wisdom. Can I, can I just on... uh, a sidebar for a second? Uh, does everybody know who Laura Loomer is? No. Nope. She, Only vaguely. I feel like we might have made fun of her on the majority report. Yeah, once. she is an alt right, uh, disgusting piece of shit. I think she's uh, worked for Project Veritas, which uh, was uh, what's that fucking little douchebag's name? The fucking uh, ginger who needs to get. I don't know. I know who you're talking about. You know though. I mean? Fuck that guy. Yeah, that fucking. You know who uh, you are. He like they destroyed Acorn and all that shit. Anyways, Laura Loomer. She like worked with that fucking piece of shit. But uh, she had a big uh, Twitter thing where she was complaining about how. Uh, men uh she'd go on tinder dates with them and then she'd like uh reveal that she was a trump supporter and uh they would just like walk off so here's a tweet here's a tweet from her right here laura loomer this is from uh a couple days ago laura loomer one time i went on a date with a 30 year old jewish lawyer in new york she's jewish by the way for our first and only date he took me to his fave mexican restaurant when i said i voted for trump the guy proceeded to attack me over tacos <laughs> about how mean I was for wanting the wall. What, did he stab her with a fork or something? I don't know, man. Like, she can't even go on a Mexican date without some, like, Isn't it know. funny that they're all always at Mexican restaurants? Always. Yeah, what the fuck? Really like, pumps up the uh, sense of dramatic irony there. However, I just misused that word. Well, maybe it would be like, you know how, like, in New York now, like, it's very rare to find, like, an Italian making like pizza at a place because like you know it's mostly like latinos who work in the service industry nowadays so they'd be like a you know an italian like you know manager italian american manager maybe they want a world where like they can still have all the lit fucking mexican food they want but is made by like fresh-faced fucking aryan children or something like that probably i think the quality would drop dramatically i'm glad that the jewish lawyer walked out on her um, shout out to him. Shout out to that Whoever guy. Whoever you are. Come on Antifada. Yep. You sound cool. We're willing to have you on anytime. Just hit us up, Antifada Mindset at gmail.com or and the underscore Antifada on Twitter or Jamie underscore Elizabeth on Twitter or, uh, I don't know, just come to our house and hang out. <laughs> we live at 743 Main Street, New York, New York. <laughs> one zero 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 one apartment 1488 
Did you just dox the mayor or something? <laughs> I, I feel have. like we just doxed someone. Oh, remember when we got drunk and uh, we prank called the mayor's personal cell phone at oh four in the morning? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was so bad. That happened. We're bad. Why yeah. do you guys have the mayor's cell phone? I mean, phone I didn't number? do oh, that. There's story. no we. No, yeah. You guys just, fucking did that. It was, it was me and my horrible You're bad friends. sometimes. I had a, uh, my friend uh, who will remain nameless uh, worked on the city council for a while uh, when de Blasio <laughs> was the uh, public advocate. And, you know, the, it's a pretty incestuous little thing downtown, you know, at the, what do you call it, city hall down there. And, uh, you know, he just got de Blasio's personal phone number as the public advocate. And, you know, they'd text and chat or whatever. And um, a couple of months ago, we went out to uh, my uncle's, uh, like, old man bar in uh, Woodhaven, Queens. You know, you can imagine the scene. And we got completely fucking hammered. Was it so woke? It was the least woke place. I was hanging out with a NYPD detective a uh, retired sanitation worker, some guy from my union, and my uh, really old uh, great uncle who was not tending bar that night, but uh, took more shots than all of us put together. He's a real strong. He's a real strong man. But uh, by the end of the night, we ended up at this really shitty hipster bar where my friends caused a lot of trouble. One of them uh, definitely choked some guy out. They were chanting nightmare at the bartender. Slash, as it turns out, owner of this bar, they were chanting Ohio at him because uh, they just assumed he was some hipster from Ohio. He's and like, then, I uh, just want to go home. <laughs> it was four in the morning. They're like, yo, fuck you. You're never going home. Ohio. Ohio. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? We had, we had had a bit a bit to drink. And then the, the for our final act. Uh, our friend, whose name starts with a D, took out his cell phone and he said, hey, you guys know I got Bill de Blasio's personal <laughs> cell phone number? And we're like, no. And my friend, my other friend grabs a phone and he dials it. And like we put it on speaker in this loud-ass bar. And uh, it only went like three rings and it went to voicemail. But deadass, it was like, you've reached Bill de Blasio. I'm unavailable to take your phone call. Please call me back at your earliest convenience. Uh, but we did not have the balls to leave him a voicemail. Why does your de Blasio sound like Cosby? I was going to say Obama. I think that that's just like your generic voice that you use now for all neoliberal politicians. Yeah. No, I feel like de Blasio. Like, I feel like he kind of has like an Obama voice for some reason. Let me be clear. I want to do something about affordable housing by upzoning all of the black neighborhoods and getting all of them out and moving other people in. Also pull up your pants. Pull up your pants. (laughs) Yeah. It's like Cosby, Obama, de Blasio, Nexus. But back to the Laura Loomer thing. Like, I don't think these ghouls fucking realize that having a guy walk out on a Tinder date with you is, like, so much less than you deserve. You deserve to be in a fucking gulag (laughs) if you're out there spreading racism and hatred throughout the country, on the internet, on TV, as she does. Yeah. Like... That's that's the thing about these ice protests too. Like, oh no, they can't eat dinner in a Mexican restaurant anymore. Suck a like, they burrito. they don't deserve to be walking free. <laughs> like, a fucking loogie in their burrito is getting off so fucking easy. And like, at the very the very least, the very least that they should have to put up with is just having to breed with their own kind so that they don't um, pollute the rest of us. With their rotten ideology. And by, the, by that, she does not mean Jews. She means alt-right people. 
Indeed. Because Lauren Loomer is a Jew, and what she actually deserves is her own fucking mother. She's sitting at a Mexican uh, restaurant, and her own mother is sitting across from her. And as our fucking new Stasi comes in to fucking take her in, interrogate her, and gulag her, instead of a date walking away from her, she deserves her mother to look her in the fucking eyes, and she says, sorry, baby, it's for the better good, as they take her away. <laughs> is that too harsh? Dead ass. Yo, so you guys have been workshopping this? No, no, I just no. made that shit up. But our, our hate is pure. It's Laura, just, uh, Laura Loomer is like, is like I, I have to say, you know, she's an alt-right horror person, but she's relatively attractive, you know, like she's half-sex-willable, I think, you know, from my subjective, you know. If on, you can disaggregate the way she looks from the rottenness inside, exactly, which yes. you can't. On the outside, she looks very, you know, attractive. So she really needs to be like a toxic fucking quasi-fascist personality for some like lawyer dude to be instead of like, all right, cool. You like Trump. I don't care. Let's eat some Mexican food. And like, just fuck. The guy just was like, whoa, you're fucking crazy and walked the hell out. You know, because guys, as you know, will do a lot in order to have sex with a relatively attractive woman. Well, I will tell you one very quick story <sighs> of how my socialist feminist politics totally totally screwed over my date with a super hot firefighter <laughs> when historical materialism goes wrong so i uh met this firefighter because my bike got locked up and i lost my keys and the firefighter saved me totally oh by God, accident right so cute you're like oh i lost my keys Oopsies. if only a strapping could someone help me out fdny man could the come best by. part was that they cut the lock and filled up my tires with air and then this super hot sweaty firefighter says to me sit on it <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> oh excuse me well and he goes the bike to see if the tires are full oh. enough <laughs> oh like, so then i work up the courage to say all right which one of you is single hell yeah <laughs> and they were and like they girl <laughs> they were like this guy it's his turn <laughs> they literally oh. said it's his turn oh, oh, shit. Shit. So I meet him later at the, like, after hours, firefighters, hangout downtown. That sounds lit, actually. He was much less cute out of his uniform. (laughs) Mm, They always are. But his buddy from the station shows up, like, halfway into a drink and sits down and is like, oh, I'm just going to have a quick one and then, like, get on the train back to Long Island. And he proceeds to start rambling about how horrible Obamacare is and how no one should have health care who didn't have to go to fight in the Iraq war like he did in order to get health care. And I was what like, what was the sex like though? Like, I looked at the hot yeah. firefighter and I looked at the like ranting, foaming conservative who just hates the idea of anyone having access to health care. And I was like, okay. And I just proceeded to scream at the dude. Oh, yeah? The whole night, and I totally blew with the firefighter. Oh, what, because you yell at his friend? Yeah. Because his friend like, was wrong. His friend was like totally wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was a loser, but he, like, was cute. He was very cute. He would have been f- interesting, maybe. <laughs> but he dropped me off at my apartment and was like, I think this is a little too much fire for me. Whoa, shit. Whoa. Damn, so, like, you actually got to ride to your place? Yeah, and you're going to invite him up for like a cup of coffee. I mean, he's like, this is too. No, I knew. I knew. I he can, no, I knew. Into a burning building and save the children inside. But he cannot handle a little socialist feminist perspective. That is sad. That's how yeah. dangerous, uh, you know, these views are, which means how powerful they are. Burn, baby, burn. Hell yeah. 
ASE word. A little too fiery for him. I've got life. I've got life.